looking to win Dale's world in sports. Let's be great. Let's be great. An entertaining and provocative look into the world of sports and beyond. Play our game. All right? Play hard, but stay poised. Please feel free to go over to Apple iTunes and rate and review. Your feedback is welcome. Go rock this thing, huh? Love you, man. Go get it. And now, the host of the program from the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, Wendell Wallace. And welcome to Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. What is going on? Que pasa, mi amigos? Me llamo a Wendell Wallace. Bonjour, bonsoir. Je m'appelle Wendell Wallace. Come on, tell you, Trebium, yes, see you, mem. What is going on? What is happening? Shalom. I hope everybody is doing well. I hope everybody is doing great. I hope everybody is doing what they need to do to make this world, to make this place, to make this neighborhood, to make this community a better place to be in. Listen, learn, learn, listen. Shut up and listen. Learn and talk to those who might not be the same as you, who might not have the same beliefs as you, to learn, to educate yourself so we can move forward in peace and harmony, to set things up for the generation after us and then the generation generation after them. Please do that because we all need to be better. And the only way that we can be better is to step outside our comfort zone, sacrifice and learn and listen. You'll be thankful that you did. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Man, a lot of things to get down with. A lot of things to get into today in the world of sports. Um, I want to apologize first. Normally, I put out two podcasts a week. I put one out last Monday, but now... A lot of stuff was going on. I was trying to get some interviews. I finally stepped into the 21st century and learned how to use Zoom. So now I can go ahead and start interviewing some of our friends and the business about what's going down in the world of sports, get their perspective. Now, I want to let everybody know, I want to let you know that when it comes to Wendell's world of sports, I am the star of the show. I am the man. I am the foundation. I am the reason why this podcast is going to pass or fail, do good or not do well. I am the reason for that. I am not looking for guests to dictate how good my podcast is going to be. I'm not looking for guests to rescue me in terms of how good my podcast is going to be. That will be up to me. That will be my decision. I am the owner. I am the boss. I am the CEO. I am the star player. I am the franchise player. I am the everything when it comes to this podcast, Wendell's World of Sports. It's got my name on it, right? So whose responsibility should it be? Should it be my guests or should it be me in terms of whether this podcast works or doesn't work? It should be up to me. So, of course, I'm going to be having some guests now that I know exactly what I'm doing with Zoom. As I spent a couple of hours the other night, thanks to finally get this thing to uh, work, finally get this, get this knowledge that I needed. And from time to time on my podcast, I will be bringing in guests to talk about what's going on in Major League Baseball, to talk about what's going on in the NFL and the NBA and all those other sports that I enjoy and hopefully that you enjoy me speaking about. But of course, I know bringing in this podcast deal, it took me this long to finally learn how to use Zoom so I can start doing some interviews. So I'm looking forward for my podcast in the future to start involving other folks to give their thoughts and opinions about what's going on in the world of sports. I know 140 minutes sometimes is a lot to be listening to me talk about what's happening in the world of sports, give my thoughts and opinions about what's going on in the world of sports and what's going on outside the world of sports that affects the world of sports. But 
you know, it's all out of love, baby. 140 minutes of love, 120 minutes of love. Sometimes, shit, even 180 minutes of love. All about me in terms of my heart and my soul, my passion, my thought, my belief, giving it to you. And I thank you for accepting. I thank you for being so receptive in what I'm talking about and the way I bring it to you and the way that uh, my style and my flow and my soul is all about. So, I appreciate that, but yes, moving forward from time to time, it ain't going to be an everyday thing. I'm not going to be having guests on for an hour and two hours or none of that stuff, but yes, within my podcast, there will be guests giving their thoughts and opinions, keeping it real, being themselves about what's happening in the world of sports. They're going to be knowledgeable. They're going to be educated. They're going to be uh, giving you some good stuff. So just a little curveball, just a little ripple, just a little... Different thing going down with my podcast, Wendell's World in Sports, continues to grow, continues to get better, continues to reach those, not just in the United States, but hopefully all over the globe. One of the reasons why I always start my podcast by saying, hello, what's happening? This is my name in several different languages. Just my way of showing love. I might, I might not be perfect. It might not be you know, 100% to the team when I talk about Jumapel, Wendell Wallace, Miyama, Wendell Wallace, Shalom, what's happening, what's going down, K-Pasa. I know that might not be 100% in terms of the, you know, getting down on the get down, but um, it's just my way of showing love, just my way of showing unity, just my way of showing thank you very much for taking the time out to listen to this long sometimes podcast. I, uh, I uh, really very much appreciate it. So let's get down to it, shall we? Things I'm going to be discussing today. I just want to give you an update on if there's going to be football, American football, not football, but American football being played this September. The NFL season is supposed to start September 10th, 2020, which is around seven weeks with the Kansas City football team, the world champion Kansas City football team versus the Houston Texans. Texans. And college football is supposed to start August 28th, which is about five weeks away with Arizona versus Brigham Young University. I, I still have I still have no idea how they're going to play football this season. I don't know, man. I don't know. The NFL agrees to cancel the 2020 season, reduce the team roster sizes from 90 to 80 for training camp. The two sides agreed, agreed to eliminate all four weeks of preseason one day after the owners offered to meet the demands of the players to do so. I, I just think the NFL is just going to say, fuck it, man. Let's just, we're going to put our head down and we're just going to go. I mean, coronavirus be damned. Positive tests rising in this country be damned. You know, places like Florida and Texas and California and Nevada and other spots where football, professional football franchises are located where the rate of positive corona tests are rising. Fuck it. We're just going to go ahead and we're just going to do it anyway. And we'll just see how far we can get before we either have to put the brakes on the season, end the season, whatever. If that's going to be in week four or week two or week eight or we got hopefully week 16. We don't know. We're at the end of the Super Bowl. We don't know. But, you know, we're just taking it one day at a time. Sweet Jesus. That's all the NFL is asking of them. Just one day at a time. And don't ask me about what's going to be happening as far as the league in October and November, week eight, week four. Man, let, let's see what we can do. To start training camps on Tuesday. I think that's the NFL's, I think that's the attitude of the NFL right now. We ain't looking long term with this shit. We're only taking it day by day. And if that day comes, we have to cancel the season, whether it be three weeks from now or three months from now or whenever, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. So, you know, again, starting with the NFL preseason, first it was the 
first it was the Hall of Fame game that was gone. Then they decided to cut it down from four games to two games. And now there is no NFL preseason at all. Now, the owners originally wanted to reduce the preseason from four games to two games. The NFLPA argued that a full August schedule, though, would make it impossible for them to have adequate acclimation period recommend, uh, recommended by the Joint Medical Task Force, and it was unnecessary to subject players to travel-related risks of contracting the coronavirus from the exhibition games. I guess you could say, fuck it, man. Are we really going to go ahead and have Patrick Mahomes or Lamar Jackson or Russell Wilson or Aaron Donald or Jamal Adams or anybody who are worth of any importance, especially if you're speaking about quarterbacks, especially if you're speaking about high-paid quarterbacks such as Carson Wentz and Jared Goff and Dak Prescott and, and, and um, Aaron Rodgers and these guys are really, really going to have the season put down the dream, put down the drain because of them con- contracting coronavirus or, um, you know, getting this virus during the fucking preseason. I mean, if they're going to get it, let's get it to while they're, you know, while the games mean something. So I guess, you know, they're minimizing the risk of getting it. On one hand, I, I see where the players are coming from with that, but, you know, the decision that was reported that the decision was made by the NFLPA and that it was reportedly a unanimous decision. But I, I don't believe it was unanimous. I think if you're speaking about players like Drew Brees and Tom Brady and J.J. Watt and Ben Roethlisberger and Russell Wilson and, and those type of players, I think it was unanimous. I think if you're speaking about players who have been in the league 5, 8, 10, 12 years and really don't need training camps who positions are established, their place in the league is established. I think those guys are like, yeah, we don't need NFL preseason games. I don't play hard in those preseason games anyway. I ain't playing the first one. I'm not playing the last one. So why do I really need to worry about basically one preseason game where I might play maybe a half at the very most? So I don't give a fuck whether we play the preseason games or not. In fact, I think it's a I think it's awesome that we don't play the preseason game. And I've heard some talk, I've heard some read some stories. And I heard some opinions from those who covered the game about, you know what, preseason is a waste of time. They don't need preseason. It's just a money grab for the owners. And so who gives a fuck if there's no preseason football game? You know who cares if there's preseason football games? Those players who went undrafted. You know who cares about preseason football games? Those players who are on the fringe and making a football team. You know who's concerned? You know who won a preseason football game? Those guys who aren't guaranteed that they have employment in the NFL as far as being a player is concerned and need to shine and show something which the NFL preseason games could do. If you speak about the undrafted players that made a strong impact in the league who weren't drafted number one, who weren't drafted in the sixth round, who weren't drafted at all, and you speak about someone like Rod Smith, the wide receiver from uh, Missouri Southern State in 1994, who was drafted by the Denver Broncos. He went on to be the starting receiver on back-to-back Super Bowl championship games. Him and Terrell Davis and Shannon Sharp were the main weapons on offense and reliable, uh, reliable weapons for John Elway. So John Elway might not have been the John Elway that we know of winning back-to-back Super Bowl championships. He could have been in the same class of Dan Marino in terms of one of the greatest quarterbacks who's ever played, but yet doesn't have a Super Bowl ring if it wasn't for Rod Smith because he went on to catch 849 passes and scored 68 touchdowns in his NFL career and guided many young, talented wide receivers for the Broncos to become uh, players for that team. 
So his valuability or his value on that team was tenfold. That might not have happened if he was in the same climate that we have in today. You're speaking about Tony, Tony Romo, the quarterback from Eastern Illinois. Yeah, you know him, Dallas Cowboys quarterback, slept with Jessica Simpson, so he did all right. He was only invited to the NFL scaling combine to throw passes to other prospects. But guess what happened? He caught the attention of Cowboy quarterback coach Sean Payton. Sean Payton told Bill Parcells. Bill Parcells said, Bill Parcells said, oh, really? You know, he had Drew Bledsoe at the starting quarterback that game against the New York Giants, I believe, in 2006. Parcells had seen enough. He put in Tony Romo, and the rest was history. They signed him on the spot and made four Pro Bowls later. Dated a couple of beautiful females. And he's doing all right in the booth. So Tony Romo, how do we know Tony Romo is Tony Romo in the year 2020? Because he doesn't have that opportunity to shine in the preseason football games. We're speaking about one of the greatest tight ends of all time, Antonio Gates, who played for the then San Diego Chargers, who went to Kent State. And in 2003, he accepted the tryout with the Chargers and was signed. When he was at Kent State, that man played basketball. He was, went, he was going the route, he, I guess he was trying to do the route of uh, Tony Gonzalez, who played basketball for uh, Cal. But Gates went on to catch 955 passes over the next 16 years, become one of the greatest tight ends of his generation and one of the great tight ends in NFL history. The only reason why Drew Brees is even sniffing the opportunity to get into the NFL Hall of Fame is because of Antonio Gates. That's not going to be happening in the climate that the league is in today. And that goes for players such as Jeff Saturday and Priest Holmes and Wes Welker and London Fletcher and James Harrison. You know, what's the, what is the, if you really think about it, what happens in 2020 if James Harrison is in the same situation? Does he get the opportunity? Does he make a team? And if that's the situation, if he doesn't, then what's going to be happening to Pittsburgh? What's going to be happening to Ben Roethlisberger? What's going to be happening to the legacy of Mike Tomlin? We speak about Wes Welker. I mean, he was an important part of Tom Brady winning Super Bowls. He was an important part of Peyton Manning winning a Super Bowl. Priest Holmes was on his way of going to the Hall of Fame when he uh, injured his knee and was never the same. London Fletcher, who was never falling down. I mean, he was an important part of the Washington football team and a great leader. These things don't happen. Jeff Saturday was a tremendous center who helped out Peyton Manning become the player that he is, the quarterback that he is. These things aren't happening uh, today. I mean, how do we know that the next Jeff Saturday or the next James Harrison or the next Rod Smith or the next Antonio Gates of the 2020 season, they're not going to have an opportunity. We might never know what happened to them because of what's going down. But then again, I understand that, you know, we, you know, the big boys rule and I understand that the world we're living in today, that's going to be an opportunity that uh, they're not going to have availability to. So, Again, I understand why the preseason games are canceled, but you know the preseason needed this year. If you take a look at the old faces and new places that could have used the reps in the games to get ready for the season, especially if you're speaking about Tom Brady in Cincinnati, excuse me, Tom Brady in uh, Tampa Bay, and Cam Newton in New England. You don't think those guys could use some games to kind of get acclimated a little bit more to a new system, to new teammates, to new coaches. Brady playing in the new environment, conference, division, coaching staff, or what, the first time in 20 years? At 43 years of age? You don't think that he could at least use one preseason game, one half of one preseason game? Rob Gronkowski, he hasn't been hit or played a snap in football for over a year. You're going to try to tell me you're going to start having him shake off the rust 
in the regular season and not the preseason? Going up against somebody else? I mean, training camp is training camp, but there's nothing like going up against another team, another player from another team. Tom Brady's not going to get that opportunity. Rob Gronkowski is not going to get that opportunity. Cam Newton is not going to get that opportunity. Again, he's playing in a new environment, in a new conference, a new offensive system, a new coaching staff for the first time in his careers. He's not going to have OTAs. He's not going to have the regular training camp to go ahead and get himself acclimated. And this is an important year for Cam Newton. This is the most important year of his NFL career. Because we're speaking about a guy who's looking for redemption. We're talking about a guy who's looking out for revenge. He's Here's a guy who's looking for a big payday. And the only way he's going to get that is he's going to have a, if he has a very successful season for the New England Patriots. His chances now are minimized or his chances now are lessened because he's not going to have that opportunity to play in preseason games. So we'll, we'll, see, what, we'll see what happens going forward. Rookie quarterbacks that are being asked to become potential franchise players. They're going to be learning not during their preseason or at least getting their feet a little wet or at least getting an idea what it's going to be about. They're going to be having to go through that when the games count for real. So you're speaking about Joe Burrow in Cincinnati. If you're speaking about Tua Tungabailoa in Miami, if you're speaking about Justin Herbert playing for the Los Angeles Chargers, what does that mean for them moving forward? Now, Tyrod Taylor is supposed to be the starting quarterback for the Chargers, so Herbert might have some time to sit and wait. Ryan Fitzpatrick is the guy starting for the Miami Dolphins, so Tua might have the opportunity to sit back and wait. But if you're thinking about Joe Burrow, a guy who's supposed to be the savior for the Cincinnati Bengals, an Ohio kid, Heisman Trophy winner from LSU, won a national championship, and he's coming in to be the starting quarterback for the Cincinnati Bengals, wouldn't it be better for him in the preseason to get, I don't know, the equivalent of one game, four quarters of the four games, to go out there and just get his feet wet just a little bit? To see what this league is all about before the bullets fly for real? No pun intended. So, I don't know. I At least for this season, I saw some real, real uh, advantages for teams to at least play in two preseason football games. Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So again, we're speaking about the NFL preseason. Each team is going to fill rosters of 80 players down from the usual 90 for COVID-19 distancing protocols. So this Sunday, NFL players with the level of power and importance such as Patrick Mahomes and J.J. Watt, Miles Garrett, they, they voiced their concern for starting training camp next week with several safety protocols still not in place. Now, again, the veterans are going to be reporting tomorrow, but some of the more established superstars of the league are sitting there talking about, hold on, man, before we get there, there's some things that we need to discuss. The NFL and the NFLPA, they've made significant progress over the past two days, figuring out the proper steps to conduct the season as safely as possible. But still, when your franchise highly paid players speak, guess what? Owners, they listen. Unless it's, you know, dealing with something, dealing with, displaying acts of peaceful protest before games, then the owners become mute and become deaf and become dumb in that situation. But when it comes to the playing field and everything, oh, when Drew Brees or when Miles Garrett or J.J. Watt or Patrick Mahomes or Deshaun Jackson and uh, Deshaun Watson, excuse me, when those guys start speaking, then those owners start listening. So the NFL players, they want to play. But as I mentioned before, there are still some concerns that uh, they need answers. There's still some questions that those guys need, need answers to. 
J.J. Watt tweeted this past Sunday. He was like, once again, in the interest of keeping everyone, players and fans, as informed as possible, here is an updated list of what we as players know and don't know as the first group gets set to report to training camp tomorrow. Veteran players report, uh, as again, uh, tomorrow, July 28th. What Russell Wilson tweeted, he said, let me see here, he said, I am concerned my wife is pregnant. NFL training camp is about to start, and there's still no clear plan or on health, player, and family safety. We want to play football, but we also want to protect our loved ones. Hashtag, we want to play. All right, Drew Brees, another player with some influence. He tweeted, we need football. We need sports. We need hope. The NFL's unwillingness to follow the recommendations of their own medical experts will prevent that. If the NFL does not or doesn't do their part to keep players healthy, there is no football in 2020. It's simple as that. Get it done. And then Miles Garrett, a guy who's about to sign, what, a contract worth somewhere in the neighborhood of $125 million, or that's a reported number, over five years or some, some astronomical number. He said that the NFL doesn't do their part to keep players healthy. There is no football in 2020. It's that simple hashtag we want to play. So, I don't know. Again, players are going to be starting to come into uh, camp tomorrow. The testing plan, once training camp starts, the players are going to be tested daily for two weeks. So, if, if the positive rate is over 5%, then they'll continue to test daily until the positive rate is below 5%. But if the positive rate is less than 5%, the players will be tested every other day, so the cost of doing this is somewhere around $75 million. But again, if you're speaking to me, if you're speaking to you, if you're speaking to NFL fans, if you're speaking to anybody, and you're talking about what needs to get done to have the NFL season start, and it doesn't take any money out of my bank account, it doesn't jeopardize me feeding my family and keeping them clothed and sheltered, then it's like, yeah, you know what? The NFL is a multi-billion dollar league. Spending around $75 million to make sure that we have football this year. Get it done. So the league is still working with the players about what situations would have the season canceled or, or ended. Basically, what's going to be happening is right now the NFL, the NFLPA are sitting down talking about the different scenarios. So what, so what does scenario? So, you know, unlike Tribe, those other folks, the NFL, NFLPA sitting down talking about what's going to be happening, what's going to be going down, what the parameters, what's the scenarios where the NFL season is going to be canceled. Well, you really don't want to put anything in stone because we don't know exactly what's going to be going down with the virus. We don't know anything in terms of the NFL is concerned, how the virus is going to be mutated, what's going to be happening in September and October and November when the weather goes down, when the flu season comes up. What scenarios are going to be happening to where the NFL is going to have to shut it down? Because if the NFL shuts it down, the players ain't going to get paid. So if you're a player, you're like, well, wait a minute now. We want to make sure that we're on the same page in terms of if we're going to lose this paycheck, let's make sure that we are agreeing that this is the right way to lose this paycheck. Don't be talking about A, B, and C when we're thinking D, E, E, and F. You know what I'm saying? That would cause a lot of B, E, E, F between the NFL, PA, and the NFL. So they don't want to make any hardened, concrete decisions while there's so many unknowns about the virus moving forward. That's good. That's good. So you would think, you know, this really ain't baseball where the NFL, where the NFL players and the NFL owners, despite the 
distance that they have as far as the trust factor is not as bad as baseball, where I think there is just an absolute pure hatred. I think there's a distrust and a dislike among the owners and the players in football. I think there's a just a vitriol hatred between Major League Baseball players and the owners. But So I think that everything is going to be worked out in terms of the testing, in terms of making sure everybody is safe, making sure... Because again, this is an investment that not only the players are going to be you know, really interested in to make sure that they are as safe as possible, but also, again, the owners. And I keep bringing it up. I, I know they're rich, and I know they're arrogant, and I know that they live in their own little world, but man, somebody should try to tell them, you know, there's been so many times, especially when it concerns health safety issues among the players, how many times are the NFL owners going to be on the wrong side of history? They were on the wrong side of history when they were talking about the concussions were no big deal, that CTE was no big deal, that you couldn't get these types of uh, uh, injuries, head injuries, because of football. And we saw how bad they looked in the PR concerning that. So what are we going to do now? Are you really think that the, the owners are going to be taking a chance of being lax and cavalier when it comes to this? No. Hopefully they're as dogmatic and as also as attention to detail in terms of keeping their players and their employees safe as much as the players are. So we'll see moving forward. So again, so I'm feeling confident about in that situation, the NFL moving forward, the season starting, but... The NFL is still not out of the woods yet. The woods yet about playing football in 2020. What do you mean, Wendell? Well, let me tell you what I mean after this. World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. So, I was speaking about, you know, the NFL, whether it's going to start or not, what's going to be happening with the NFL, some of the some of the navigation that the NFL and the NFLPA has to go through to make sure that we have a successful season for as long as possible. Again, I don't know how long this is going to last, but you know what? In life, I always say we take things one day at a time. One day at a time. Sweet Jesus, that's all I'm asking from you. Help me to take it one day at a time. So I guess that's what the NFL owners are, are doing. And the players, that's what they're doing. So don't ask me about what's going to be happening in October. Don't, what's going to be, don't ask me about what's going to be happening when the flu season goes, goes, uh, happens and people start getting the flu. Don't be asking me about you know what's going to be happening in the states with the high coronavirus in terms of the positive tests are concerned. What's going to be happening with that nonsense? Let's just talk about getting into training camp tomorrow. And then let's see what we can do about uh, 
you know, working from there. The preseason games have already been canceled. I mentioned before that I thought that as far as this season is concerned, now look, in every season you have players changing teams. Because I mentioned Tom Brady and I mentioned Cam Newton going to different situations for the first time in their careers and how important it is really for Cam Newton to really have a great year so he can recoup some of that money he's going to lose because of the contract that he signed with the New England Patriots, restore some of that shine that has been dimmed over the last couple of years. This is his best chance. This might be his last chance. This might be his only chance to do that. So you would think that, you know, in a normal life, in a normal world that we'll be living in, that OTAs and the preseason games and training camp and everything would give him the best opportunity to maximize his opportunities to do that. Well, when you're eliminating the four preseason games, even though it was pretty well known for the most part that Cam wasn't going to play in the fourth preseason game and very and get very limited time probably in the first preseason game, but you use those second and third preseason games again to get himself established, to get himself, you know, working with his new teammates in a game type situation. It's the closest thing that you're going to get to a game type situation. You ain't going to get it in training camp, the preseason. It's the closest thing you're going to do as far as getting it close to the regular season is concerned. I talked about Ron Gronkowski not being hit in over a year. Wouldn't you like to see him get hit in the preseason and not the regular season? So in a world that we're living in today, again, I understand why there isn't any, but as far as the play on the field is concerned, I think that it's going to uh, hurt. I think it's going to be a detriment to some of these teams. As I mentioned, hey, don't be surprised because they don't have these preseason games, because they don't have the opportunity to work out all the kinks in a preseason game. But the New England Patriots with Cam Newton start the season, if they're going to play four or five or six weeks straight, don't be surprised if the New England Patriots start off three and three or two and four, or they start off, start off one and four. Uh, New England is normally a slow starting team to begin with for some of the seasons that Belichick has been the coach. So, you know, in a situation like this, where this is something that's so new and bringing in Cam Newton, who is a completely different type of quarterback than Tom Brady, that um, the Patriots for the first couple of games, they uh, they stumbled a little bit. And in a season where we don't know if we're going to have 16 games or 12 games or eight games or four games, I think it's important that they go ahead and they try to get in some preseason games. But that's the life and the world that we live in as of right now. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So the NFL, as I mentioned before, sorry for the delay in the tease. The NFL is not out of the woods about playing in 2020. And it has, again, nothing to do about how the league is going to navigate a season with the coronavirus. A union source told Yahoo Sports that 99% of health and safety issues have been reached on some common ground. So that's not the reason. The two major hurdles that have not been cleared yet are a financial agreement on how and when players will share the burden of inevitability, revenue shortfalls, and a set of guidelines that would cause individual teams or the entire league to be shut down by the COVID-19 virus. Without a solution, According to this Yahoo uh, Sports story, without a resolution to those issues, the players will not play. So what would happen basically if the player salaries, is what's going to happen to those salaries if the season is shortened or ends because of the coronavirus? The owners want the players 
to be adjusted accordingly to the numbers of the weeks in the 17-game week schedule that are in the books at the time of the stoppage, while the players, on the other hand, they want the players' salaries would be paid accordingly to the prorated amount of the regular season games that took place during the season. But the Players Association, they've taken the stance that, you know what, hey, we collectively bargain that there's language in there that guarantees players are going to be paid their full paychecks regardless of the number of games that played once the 2020 season kicks off so basically the nfl is like well if we only play eight games we're only going to play pay you for eight games and the nfl players association is like bullshit once this season starts you're going to be paying us for 17 games whether we play 17 games or two games so i think in a situation like this public sentiment is going to go the way of the owners players will be you know, players are still well compensated. Now, you know, you could talk about the rookies and you could talk about late round draft picks and you could talk about unsigned free agents or players who weren't drafted and came into training camps and earned a job. Yeah, they're not making $5 million. Yeah, they're not making $2 million. Yeah, they're not making even, you know, eight hundred, nine hundred thousand dollars $900,000. But still, you're speaking about to the public today, when you're speaking about the unemployment rate being so high, when you're speaking about those who have applied for unemployment like yours truly, who still haven't gotten any type of compensation for that, for those who are still you know, dealing with the $600 which they haven't gotten yet, when we're still up in the air about whether we're going to even continue with those payments, when you're speaking about millions upon millions of American citizens who have not had the opportunity to go back to work, who have not had the opportunity to earn a paycheck, who are still fighting, who are still making calls to the unemployment offices day after day and sending hundreds of emails and trying to do whatever they can just to get a payment so they can pay their mortgage, so they can pay their bills, so they can make sure that their kids are going to be safe and make sure that their spouses are going to be safe. When you're putting it in that perspective and then you're speaking about the players saying that you know what fuck that if we go back to play and after four or five or six games the season ends we still should be getting paid like we paid like we played 17 games i think that type of attitude is not going to go over with the with the public now the NFL, NFL players can say, fuck the public because they're not the ones that are paying my car. They're not the ones who are paying my mortgage. They're not the ones who are paying my side, uh, my, my side pieces. They're not the ones who are, you know, paying my, my mother and my brother and my cousin and my uncles. I mean, Mamani Jones, when I was listening to a podcast, he you know, made the right, um, he, he made a really good point when he was talking about, yeah, you know what? These guys make a whole bunch of money. But also, you're speaking about these guys are also, dealing with financial issues that a lot of folks like us who don't make that type of money, who aren't in the six figures, we're not dealing with that because these guys have to take care of the mama. These guys have to take care of their cousins. These guys have to take care of those who help them through the neighborhood. So, you know, this was a situation with this pandemic that was thrust upon this world without any real type of warning. For the most part, so you're speaking about guys who, you know, might have a house payment for their for their family members, you know, car payments. They might be invested in their cousin's uh, business ventures or anything like that to where, yeah, they might be making $500,000. Yeah, they may be making a, a million dollars. But a lot of that is going to other things that we don't have to worry about, other expenses that we don't have to worry about because we ain't making that type of coin. We ain't making that type of bread. So, yeah, from the player's standpoint, I can see that. But still, when the average American person, someone who's 
you know, making an income of forty-four to forty-eight to fifty-two thousand dollars, and all of a sudden you're taking five percent off of that, or you're, if you're from a dual household who's making close to ninety-five thousand dollars, now all of a sudden the spouse loses their job, so now you're a one-family income, and you don't know when that other person in that household who's the breadwinner is going to be coming back to work. Yeah, it's kind of hard for the NFL owners, uh, NFL players, excuse me, to sit there and talk about, yeah, despite the fact that we're not playing football anymore after seven weeks that we still need our full 17-week salary because the average person is going to look and say, well, shit, we ain't getting any of that. I mean, you know, what the hell, what the fuck are you guys talking about? And you should also know the fact that with this pandemic that this was a foolish venture to begin with. So if you are making that type of money, you should be responsible enough to say, okay, let's kind of make sure that we can uh, set our money aside for a rainy day, that we're responsible enough to mortgage our money to if this happens. Let's say, for instance, that the league, if the league cancels the season after week four, after week six, after week eight, okay, how much money are we going to have to set aside? How much money are going to be had? What type of sacrifices are we, are we going to have to make? The NFL players have that opportunity to do that now. If I'm part of the general public. So don't be sitting up there talking about they're going to be arrogant enough to say we're going to continue to spend the way that we spend. We're going to continue to live the way that we live because whether we play the season or not, we're still going to get 17 weeks worth of pay. Fuck that. Fuck you. That ain't happening to me. So why should it happen to you? So that's one of the things that the players and the owners are trying to work with right now. Exactly. If the season ends, what are they going to be doing about the salary? The owners want to pay them their prorated salaries for up to the point they're not playing. The players, on the other hand, they want all of that money for 17 weeks. So that's one area of concern on the play, on the, on the season that's starting. The other one is how much will the salary cap drop? I mean, how will the two sides uh, you know, spread out the potential revenue shortfall that could cripple the 2021 salary cap? Because the NFL is putting the potential salary cap loss somewhere around $40 million per team, while the union has said that that number, that number could be as high as $70 million per team. So basically, what is the league and what are the players going to do negotiating-wise to spread that money out to where it's going to be advantageous for both the players and the owners? The NFL has proposed spreading out the hit over three seasons from 2021 to 2023. The union, on the other hand, has proposed spreading out the losses out evenly over nine seasons, 2021-2029. If you remember the NBA, remember when the NBA had the big, huge windfall of money and the owners were like, well, you know, instead of like, you know, giving it to you all at once so we, we can raise the salary cap to a ridiculous number, why don't we just kind of spread it out a little bit so, you know, you won't be having the highs and lows of the salary cap and the players were like, no, 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 fuck that. If the salary cap is supposed to explode this season because of the TV contract money and everything, give us all of that money, give it all of it, no, give it all right now. And that was a mistake by the players because you had Hayden Turkaloo you know, signing six years, $80 million. You had Evan Turner making a ridiculous amount of money. The, the NBA owners had all this money that Yamahimi got paid and all these other guys who were marginal NBA players got paid and it crippled the 
NBA going forward for teams because you had marginal players who weren't living up to their contracts, but yet the team couldn't improve because a lot of their dead money and a lot of their dead weight were going to players who weren't performing, and they couldn't trade them, they couldn't get rid of them, so they became albatrosses. So in the NFL, that's kind of what the NFL owners are looking to do, kind of to uh, make sure that that doesn't happen, and the NBA players are like, no, we don't trust you guys enough to uh, spread that money out over three over uh, nine seasons we want it as soon as possible we want our money and we want our now we want it now and we don't have to call jg wentworth 877 cash now we want it now so it'll be interesting moving forward but that's another roadblock to where the nfl season could couldn't start my whole deal is like look man these are just things that are going to be negotiated the nfl players want to play and there's motivation among the players and the owners to play. Something will be worked out. I'm very confident in that. So it looks like, man, we're going to be moving forward with the NFL season, you know, by hook or by crook, by negative or by positive tests. So brace yourself, at least for the first month or whatever, starting in September. All we have to do is get through one more month. There's only a few more days left in um, July. Training camp starts July 28th, which is tomorrow. And so uh, without training, it doesn't really matter. I mean, who, who here really watches the NFL preseason to begin with? I mean, I know the importance, but I don't worry about that stuff. It's just something for the betters to do. It's also something, once I mentioned again, for, you know, television viewing. You know, nothing else has really gone normally. I mean, what is what else is there? The NBA season is normally on a hiatus. You have college football starting soon, but, you know, as I always mentioned before, these are the times. You have this four or five or six-week period. If you're a guy, if you're a gal who's a fan of sports, this is the time right now to go ahead and do all those things in terms of, you know, honey, let's go ahead and do this. I'm going to play a little bit more with the kids. If we're going to go on vacation, let's do it now. The most time I'm going to be spending with you to show you that I love you, to show you that I care about you, to show you that our marriage is strong, to show you that our relationship is strong, should be happening sometime between, I would say, July 4th all the way up to near the end of August. Go ahead, build up that equity right now because, as you know, on a normal during normal times when the NFL season starts and when college football season starts, your weekend should be occupied. So whatever your brat has to do, it better be between, you know, Saturday in the morning or depending upon where you live in this country, in the United States, whatever we need to do as far as hanging around with your brat or hanging around with your wife or hanging around with your side piece or hanging around with everybody, it better happen before the college football game start 12 p.m. Eastern Standard Time because after that, don't bother me. Don't get in my way. Don't tell me to do anything because I'm going to be locked down watching some college football. Then especially don't talk to me on Sundays because that's NFL time. So I ain't doing shit. So don't be nagging. Don't be talking this. Don't be talking that. It's time for me to sit back and watch some NFL football. So as I mentioned before, these are the times. These are the days. These are the time periods. We're fellas. We're ladies. Get together with someone that you love. You take that vacation. You take that ride up to the vineyard. You take that ride up to Mount Charleston. You take that ride around the block. You know, you walk with them kids, man. You go ahead and you do all them things with them kids, with your kids. Because once September rolls around and that NFL season starts that Thursday night, 
Yeah, we're not going to be worried about testing positive. We're not going to be worried about coronavirus in terms of the NFL's concern. All we're going to be concerned about is Patrick Mahomes going to be okay. Is Deshaun uh, Deshaun Watson going to be okay? Are we going to be ready to get some ball? Are we going to be ready to play some football? And the answer better be a definite, without question, yes. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us, so doggone glad that you could be with us in the background, as I always do my podcasts from my humble town home here in northwest Las Vegas, Nevada, on a beautiful Sunday night. On the background in my TV screen, I got the 2012 gold medal game between the USA basketball team and Spain. Man, this was a hell of a game, man. I forgot where I was. I didn't see this live. I forgot I was traveling or doing something. I forgot. But I remember I was pissed because I was listening to it on the radio. And it was like, God damn it. I was mad at somebody. I don't know who it was. But, uh, yeah, I didn't have the opportunity to see this game live. But, man, the 2012 team, man, I forgot what a hell of a squad that was. When you're talking about Darren Williams, who's no longer in the league, and Chris Paul and LeBron James at its height and Dwayne Wade and... Mello was out there shooting threes and doing his thing. Kevin Love was on that team. And Spain, man, that was a good team. You had Ricky Rubio. You had Paul Gasol, the Gasol brothers. You had Serge Ibaka on that team. The USA, Kevin Durant was on that team. Everybody talks about the dream team with Jordan and Bird and Magic and those guys. And, yeah, man, those guys were great. And, yeah, those guys belong in the Hall of Fame as a team. And, yeah, those guys were highly responsible for the impact that they had on the NBA today moving forward because when those guys were beating up on Angola and when those guys were beating up on Croatia and when those guys were doing what they needed to do to make sure that people understood from across the pond that the number one team as far as basketball is concerned in the world was the United States of America. And for the game of basketball, reigning supreme without question, without doubt, and by miles was the was uh, was um, the United States after the 82-76 loss that uh, the John Thompson coach uh, United States team had uh, against, I guess it was Croatia, I forgot, one of the, the Soviet Union team or whatever, but they lost in the uh, semifinals, and that was when they had college basketball players. And even then, I believe it was the 1988 gold, uh, uh, NBA... Uh, 1988 Olympics for basketball. A lot of the guys that um, or even in college didn't play in those Olympics. So for that team to get to the medal round, which they did, was fantastic. But you see the impact that the Dream Team had moving forward. Say now that the college basketball players, even college-age basketball players, could compete in the Olympics or in international competition with the... uh, with the countries, with the players from other countries would be ludicrous. We would get destroyed. Croatia and all those other teams, they would absolutely, Lithuania, Spain, Argentina, those teams would destroy us, a college-age basketball team. So that is all the impact of the 1992 Dream Team and how 
As I've always said, the NBA NBA basketball is stronger now than it has ever been. Don't talk about the 90s. Don't talk about the late. Don't talk about the 80s. Don't talk about any of that nonsense. I became an NBA basketball fan watching the Showtime Lakers and Magic Johnson and Larry Bird go back to back and forth. I, you know, was a fan back in the 90s when Patrick Ewing was playing with the New York Knicks and going up against Michael Jordan and Charles Barkley and those guys. That 92 dream team, those players on those teams that were so important for the development and growth of basketball to where it is today. Yes, those guys were great. Yes, those guys were fantastic. Yes, those guys were impactful. But you take a look at the players today. If you take a look at the game today, you can whine and you can moan and you can complain about the three-point shooting and the lack of a in-between game and maybe the lack of post-up play and the lack of a big man, a traditional big man. But uh, the NBA, as far as the skill-wise is concerned, the talent-wise is concerned, it has never been better than it is in the year 2020. So you take a look at this 2012 Dream Team a redeemed team. What was this? What was this uh, called? I think this was called the redeemed. No, the 2008 was a redeemed team. I think this was the 2012 USA basketball team. But if you take a look at the this squad and you put them up against the dream team, I'm not. I'm not saying. Or should I? Am I saying? You know what? I'm going to say it. Fuck it. I'm going to say it. I think that the 2012 USA basketball team beats the dream team of '92. Because everybody wants to talk about Jordan, Bird, and Magic. Well, look, Magic had been out of the game because of the HIV virus. Bird was a shell of himself. He barely played because of his bad back. You know, you had Jordan, who was great. Barkley, who was great. John Stockton was injured, so he barely got any time. Christian Leitner didn't get any time because he was a college player. Scottie Pippen was great. Ewing was great. Carl Malone was great. David Robinson was great. Chris Mullen was a great shooter. Clyde Drexler, those guys, yeah. But man, look at this squad for 2012. I'm doing this podcast and looking at this game right now. You got Chris Paul, you got Kobe Bryant, you got Dwayne Wade, you got LeBron. Again, LeBron, Kobe, and Dwayne Wade at the height of their powers. For that 92 Dream Team, when you think about the big three of Jordan, Bird, and Magic, Jordan was the only one at the height of his powers. Bird was done physically. Magic again didn't play because of the of uh, because of the HIV positive, and he was in his early thirties. I'm thinking the 2012 team beats the '92 Dream Team four games to three. I am. I'm going there. I am definitely going there. So that's what I'm looking at as I do this podcast right now. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad, so glad that you could be with us. Let's get in to some NFL news, shall we? The New York Jets finally traded Jamal Adams to the Seattle Seahawks. It's about goddamn time. The Jets received a first-round pick in both the 2021 and 2022 NFL Draft, the 2021 third-round pick in safety Bradley McDougal. The Seahawks also received a 2022 fourth-round pick. Now, again, we always do this. We always go this route. How will this trade be graded from each team? Who won the trade and who did better and who made out more and this, that, and the other? For Seattle, for this trade, they gave up so much for a safety. I mean, normally, if we're speaking about players of impact on a football team, first you start with the quarterback, of course. Then you're speaking about a pass rusher. Then you're speaking about an interior lineman. Then you're speaking about an offensive lineman. You're even speaking about a cornerback before you finally get to a safety. So 
for Seattle to make this trade, they must be sitting there thinking about we're on the precipice of winning a Super Bowl or at, at least really competing for a Super Bowl. So for them to mortgage their future like they did, Pete Carroll, John Snyder, the GM of the Seahawks, you're speaking about meeting expectation for this trade for Seattle, first of all, to re-sign uh, Jamal Adams when he becomes a free agent, I believe at the end of the 2021 season, but then to go ahead in the winner's Super Bowl and for Adams to play like Earl Thomas and Cam Chancellor, who was part of that Legion of Boom uh, secondary that had Seattle on the on the cusp of becoming a dynasty, but you know, Pete Carroll decided he wanted to throw the ball and hand it off. But okay, that's a whole other issue. That's a whole other podcast. So basically, Adams was brought in to replace Earl Thomas, Cam Chancellor, as the long term impact and production player. Um, the Seahawks, ugh, good squad. They won eleven and five last season. But, you know, when you kind of go to the devil of the details and you take a look at the metrics, they only outscored their opponents by seven points. They went 9-2 in games decided by seven points or fewer. And then you have to look and say that two of those games, the opponents, the other team missed a potential game-winning field goal attempt in the final minutes of the game or in overtime. So you're looking in the season that went 11 and 5 you're you're looking possibly at a team that could have gone 8 and 8 and if you're going 8 and 8 instead of 11 and 5 do does Seattle make that trade I don't know I don't know Adams is the best safety in the game he's one of the premier defensive talents he's going to be playing for a coach who's known for a defensive acumen Seattle has done it before building from the outside in in terms of the backfield to the defensive line, if you take a look at it, when they had Earl Thomas and Cam Chancellor and those guys and Richard Sherman and up front, they only had Michael Bennett as the pass rusher. <clears throat> I don't know if it's going to work. Seattle does have now the best secondary in the league, if you really think about it. They have four quality Pro Bowl defensive uh, type of backs with Quentin Dunbar, Shaquille Griffin, Adams, and uh, Quadre Diggs. So that's one thing, but if you're not putting any pressure on the quarterback, then, I mean, what does it really mean? So it's going to be interesting. I don't think that their defense is as potent as, say, the Baltimore Ravens or the New England Patriots or maybe even, the, well, of course, the San Francisco 49ers. I don't think they're at that level, but they're going to have a really good secondary if the season goes along like it's supposed to be going on. And if you take a look at the Seahawks and you take a look and you say to themselves, well, if we are going to make it to the Super Bowl, if we are going to be really elite, we're going to have to find a way to slow down, stop, do whatever you can. The three, four main teams that do have quarterbacks that are potent weapons for getting their teams to the Super Bowl. When you're speaking about playing in a division that has, uh, you know, Tom Brady and Drew Brees, when you speak about playing in a division that has Kyle Shanahan as their head coach, Sean McVay as their head coach, Sean Payton as their head coach. So the secondary help is really needed. They can use a pass rush. And with the with the uh, discrepancy in the contracts that were brought in when you're speaking about the trades that were made and bringing in Jamal Adams and the fact that he's still on this rookie deal that the Seahawks freed up some caps so they could go ahead and maybe get themselves a pass rusher. There was reports that I was reading that, you know, the possibility now is they might have enough money to re-sign Jadavion Clowney if 
he wants to come back to the team and give them that pass rusher that they really need. So the NFL is most definitely a passing league. And when you're speaking about a passing league, what do you need? You need players who can rush the quarterback and put pressure on the quarterback, and you need secondaries that can cover that can um, cover the wide receivers. So they definitely have their they definitely have the secondary taken care of in terms of the talent. Now it's up to them to go ahead and get themselves the pass rushers to uh, go ahead and put some pressure on those quarterbacks. Now this also, if I'm thinking about this trade when they made this, not only did it put pressure on the Seahawks as an organization, as a coaching staff, and as a general manager for mortgaging their, mortgaging their future to win a championship in the next couple of years, this also is going to put some more pressure on quarterback Russell Wilson. Now, the only reason why I say that, Wilson was magnificent last year. He was the third best quarterback in the league behind Patrick Mahomes and behind uh, Lamar Jackson. At the very least, for the next three, four years tops, I think that he's going to be a top six quarterback. When you take a look at, you know, Drew Brees, I don't know how much longer he's going to be playing because he's past his 40. We don't know how long Tom Brady's going to be playing. We don't know the situation with Aaron Rodgers. We don't know the situation with Ben Roethlisberger about two or three years down the road. You still take a look at these young cats. We don't know. The jury is still out on Baker Mayfield. The jury is still out on Sam Darnold. The jury is still out on a lot of these young cats. We don't know what's going to be happening with Tua. We don't know what's going to be happening with Joe Burrow. You have someone like Justin Fields out of Ohio State. You have someone like a Trevor Lawrence out out of, out of <clears throat> Clemson that's going to be coming into the league soon. We don't know about the situation with Dak Prescott. We don't know about, you know, Carson Wentz's injury history. We don't know if Jared Goff is going to be able to bounce back. With, between all of these quarterbacks and the situations that they have, I still think two to three to four years, Russell Wilson is still going to be that guy who's going to be considered if you take a look at the 2023-24 season, I still think that he's going to be that guy that's still going to be a top six at worst quarterback and possibly the number one or number two quarterback, depending upon what happens with Patrick Mahomes. I think Mahomes is going to occupy that position as long as he can stay relatively healthy for the next eight to ten years. Even though you know Lamar Jackson will see what happened to him, Deshaun Watson will see what happens with him. Again, you know, I think Carson Wentz could also be that guy if he can maintain health. That he could be that guy that for the next five, six, seven, eight years could be a top five, top four quarterback in this league. But for now and for the next couple of years, Russell Wilson's going to be that guy. So if you're the Seahawks, you have to maximize the opportunities for your squad with that quarterback, with that franchise quarterback under center to make it to the Super Bowl. So the fact that Russell Wilson making the money that he does and you're going to have to pay um you're going to have to pay Jamal Adams when the time comes Seattle is not going to be in position to get themselves a highly regarded offensive tackle get themselves a highly regarded wide receiver get themselves a highly regarded uh, running back get themselves a highly regarded tight end to help out Russell Wilson. Wilson, basically on offense, is going to have to continue to do this by himself. No wonder this guy was jonesing so hard for them to bring in someone like an Antonio Brown. I mean, outside of Tom Brady, can you really think of any other quarterback who's been a top five, top six, top seven quarterback in the league for the past three to four years has not had himself a really strong weapon? I mean, Doug Baldwin, okay, maybe, sure, but, you know, it, it hasn't been that stud wide receiver. So him and Tom Brady, I think I've been... Has been really 
carrying that offense from the quarterback position because he didn't have a Tyreek Hill like Patrick Mahomes has. Uh, Russell Wilson doesn't have himself a, a uh, oh, let me think, like a, 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 like a Desha- DeAndre Hopkins like Deshaun Watson had in Houston. So he doesn't have himself a Michael Thomas like Drew Brees has in New Orleans. So, again, Russell Wilson is going to be the guy on offense to say, look, you know, we're going to have to average 24, 27 points a game. If we're going to do that, we're going to have to do it mainly because of you. Seattle hadn't had themselves any type of decent running back since Marshawn Lynch left. Uh, it never had really had a really quality number one strong wide receiver or tight end. It's been Russell Wilson, Russell Wilson, Russell Wilson. So we'll, we'll see what we can do. We'll see what's going to be, be able to happen. Can the Seattle offense do enough? In the upcoming seasons, again, you're going to have to find a gem. You're going to have to find someone in the later rounds, John Snyder, to give Russell Wilson some help. And with the salary cap and with having to pay Jamal Adams, and we don't know what the salary cap is going to look like, a free agent isn't going to be running in from the hills. A number one stud free agent is not going to be running in from the uh, from the hills to save Russell Wilson, to give him a target to throw to, to give him a running back that he can hand the ball off to, an offensive lineman, an offensive tackle that's going to be able to protect his backside. So it'll be interesting. I mean, Wilson was sacked the league highs 48 times last season. And since joining the league in 2012, he's been sacked 347 times, more than anybody else. That's per NFL research. In last season, he was sacked 48 times, the most in the league. So we'll see what happens. Dwayne Brown is likely to be the only lock to return to the starting lineup with three or four new starters expected to be on the Seahawks offensive line. You know how long it takes for continuity of an offensive line to mesh and gel. It's going to take at least a season and a half, and that's with a normal NFL season. We don't know what the hell's going to be happening because, again, there is no preseason. Because this offseason, there has been no OTAs. We don't know what training camp is going to be looking like. We don't know how long this season is going to last, even if we have a season. So, it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting going forward. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host. Wendell Wall is so glad that you could be with us. So, we talked about the Seattle situation and what they got is getting Jamal Adams. The Jets, you guys should be dancing in the streets like Martha and the Vandellas, baby. Man, they they got a great load. Mainly, especially after, I mean, unbeknownst to Jamal Adams, he went Charles Barkley, Philadelphia 76ers, 1991-92, and trying to be traded. Remember back in the day when Charles Barkley was so sick of the Philadelphia organization because he kept losing to Jordan and he didn't feel that he had a good team around him. He got tired of carrying a bunch of nobodies. So Barkley went off. This was before, this was even after the spinning incident where he spit on a kid and all that kind of stuff and threw a guy through a window in Orlando. Barkley went off and he tried to do everything humanly possible to get himself traded from Philadelphia. He ripped on his teammates. He ripped on the owner. I think he called Howard Katz a racist or something like that. He did everything. Jamal Adams basically did everything Charles Barkley did except calling the city itself a racist. Racist. Because I remember Charles Barkley called Philadelphia a racist. I mean, Barkley was doing everything humanly possible to get traded. 
and Jamal Adams must have gone to his playbook because Adams called out the owner. He went on record after re, after um, talking and questioning whether Adam Gates was the right man for the job. He criticized general manager Joe Douglas for not offering him a contract extension. I mean, he made what um, he made he he made what's the guy who got traded last season? J- Jalen Ramsey. Yeah, he made Jalen Ramsey's rant. When he was trying to get out of um, Jacksonville, he made that look tame after everything what he was doing. So for the Jets to get the haul that they got when the chemistry or when the environment was so poisonous and the fact that really the Jets could not go on and not have this distraction with Adams and Kemp, what they got, that was awesome. That was a good job for the Jets. Now the question is going to be moving forward for New York. Are they going to take advantage of the opportunity to rebuild long-term with the people that they have in place right now? Basically, when these draft picks are going to be made, who is going to be making the draft pick for what coach? Because there is no guarantee. There is really less than a 60-70% guarantee that Adam Gates is even going to be the coach of the New York Jets moving forward. There was a lot of speculation sometime around the middle of last season that Adam Gates wasn't even going to make it out of the first year of his um of his coaching tenure with the New York Jets. So you can give, I mean, when you speak about it, I would come to imagine that you put truth serum that most GMs in most sports love the opportunity to go ahead, go ahead and have a plethora of, of draft picks for them to choose from, whether you're speaking about the NFL or the NBA or the National Hockey League, that these guys, GMs, I mean, that's where they make their bones, man. This is where they make their resumes. This is where, you know, if you're looking to prepare for the Hall of Fame, baby, and you're talking about a situation where you have all of these picks, this is a situation where you have the opportunity to build a possible dynasty, especially if the Jets believe that they have themselves a potential franchise quarterback in Sam Darnold. The question is, is general manager Joe Douglas First of all, is he capable enough to put together a team with these picks to take advantage of this? So long-term, the Jets are going to be contenders for the Super Bowl and for division titles and such. Is he capable? And if he's not capable, then what does that mean for the Jets going forward? Does the expectations that have been cast upon Joe Douglas to do something with these moves I mean, is this going to be able to enable him to do what he what he wants to do? Because short term, the Jets are going to stink. But long term, with these draft picks, they could be turning into something that could be reckoned with. And what was the last time with the New York Jets you had the opportunity to say, New York Jets really good in the same sentence? What, when you had Chad Pennington as your quarterback? When Bill Parcells was there for a year with Jenny, Vinny Testaverde? What, when Richard Todd was the quarterback? When Joe Klecko was uh, sacking people? Who knows? Joe Willie Namath back in the 1960, uh, 69 season? Who knows? Who knows? But the trade was interesting. The trade, but it was a trade that had to be done. Jamal Adams basically wanted out. Now the Seahawks have to do everything that they can to make sure that they sign this guy because he was out there tweeting when he was trying to get himself taken out of the uh, situation in New York with the Jets. He was up there talking about how much he would love to go ahead and play for the uh, Dallas Cowboys. So there's some there's some convincing, there's some relationship building 
that Pete Carroll and John Snyder and the Seattle organization has to do with Jamal Adams, but nothing beats building a strong relationship and wanting to be somewhere than to uh, win football games. And if you speak about Seattle, man, do I love myself from Seattle. One of my all-time favorite cities. I was there once for a friend of mine who was getting married. So I was there for like three or four days. I love Seattle. Absolutely love it. Might not have had, might not have had the strong, might not have been there long enough to really get myself a sense of this is really great. This is really wonderful. But man, for me, D.C. will always be, the D.C., Washington metropolitan area will always be number one in my heart. No better. No doubt. No, no doubt about it. But you're speaking about the Washington, D.C. area. You're speaking about the Bay Area, San Francisco. You're speaking about uh, Seattle. Those are my three in terms of, you know, if I had money and I could live anywhere, those would be my top three. Of course, the D.C. area would be, number, would be choices one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Number nine, number nine, ten would be San Francisco, and number 11 would be Seattle, and then wherever else happens, happens. But yeah, man, good deal by the... New York Jets to get themselves get themselves some picks long term. Try to rebuild that franchise. And I've always enjoyed teams like the who who like to go for it. You know, who don't be stupid about it. Don't be like Daniel Snyder. But, you know, always give the fan base something to clamor for. And when you got yourself a quarterback in Seattle like Russell Wilson. The time to win championships, while wow, he's still that franchise guy, one of the elite, not just quarterbacks, but players in the NFL, is now in 2021, in 2022, and 2023. You do everything you can within reason to get them a shot, to give that team a shot to win a Super Bowl. And with this trade for Jamal Adams, the Seahawks have moved themselves closer to being one of those teams who can compete and possibly win a championship. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Man, I forgot how good this game was. Again, I'm watching the USA Basketball Team 2012 Olympic gold medal game against Spain. Man, I completely forgot what a beast Paul Gasol was in 2012. God bless Kobe Bryant and his beautiful daughter. I hope that they're resting in heaven. But, uh, man, this was a fucking good game. I forgot Tyson Chandler was in this game, was on that team, too. 2012 team, man, was no joke. I'm telling you, it was no joke. Everybody wants to sit here and glamorize and slobber about how awesome and wonderful the 1992 Dream Team was. But again, I'm putting my money on 2012 in the best of seven series. I'm putting it on LeBron. I'm putting it on CP3. I'm putting it on Kevin Love. I'm putting it on Kobe. I'm putting it on Dwayne Wade. I'm putting it on them boys. To beat that 92 team. Four games to three. LeBron at his height. That would have been something else. So there you go. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So getting back to the NFL. 
Training camp starting tomorrow. NFL owners behaving badly again. God almighty. Woody Johnson, owner of the New York Jets and the United States ambassador to Britain. Can we? Can this country embarrass itself even more? I mean, the idiot that we have in the office right now kind of set us up to be like laughing stocks of the world, which we honestly deserve. Because I can't think of a country that would be stupid enough to actually vote someone like him into an office unless they're being brainwashed or unless they're a communist country or something like that. I can't think of a democratic country that would be stupid enough to vote for a guy that we have in the office right now. But we sure did. We sure did. And now we're paying for it. So the jackass who was supposed to clean up the swamp, Woody Johnson, the owner of the Jets and the United States ambassador to Britain, he was accused of making comments to ambassador colleagues that they found racist or sexist. The complaints were included in a report filed in February by the State Department investigators. Now, the report has not been released publicly, but according to interviews with a dozen current and former ambassador employees, Johnson regularly made his female and black staff members uncomfortable or worse with comments about their appearance or race. This was reported by CNN. One black female diplomat, for example, told colleagues that Johnson disparaged her from disparaged her efforts to schedule events for Black History Month. The diplomat said Johnson was asked if he had to speak to an audience that was, quote, just a bunch of black people and told her she was marginalizing herself. Gee whiz. According to three sources, Johnson questioned why the black community would want a separate month to celebrate black history and argued that black fathers didn't remain with their families. And that was the real challenge. Yeah, so he looks like a guy who could be definitely in this uh, administration. I mean, he fits the qualifications for perfectly ignorant and racist. So there you go. And if he was and if he's corrupt, whoo, that makes it even better. One source said an official who heard the remarks was stunned and that the incident was documented and made known to both the OIG inspectors and a supervisor. Female employees also complained that Johnson held business lunches in London at an executive men's club, which meant that only male employees could attend. Eventually, Johnson was told by another diplomat at the embassy in late 2018 that he had to stop holding those meetings there. And according to one source at a certain public event, Johnson would start his remarks by by quipping about how many pretty women were present, reducing them to decorative objects in a way a source described as, quote, just sort of cringeworthy. Ah, but it gets better. It gets better. Johnson indicated he preferred working with women, women, but he suggested that was because women were cheaper and worked harder than men. Oh, man. Oh, say can you see by the dawn's early light what so proudly we hail of having a fucking idiot in the White House who appoints jackasses like these. Welcome to America in 2016. Two sources told CNN. He would also, speaking about Woody Johnson, he would also comment on the way that the women were in the epi- in the in the embassy were addressed. Those sources said that it was a struggle to get Johnson on board with an event for International Women's Day, which is also widely commemorated 
at ambassadors worldwide. One source said he asked why he had to do a feminist event. God Almighty. Now, of course, Johnson denied the allegations on the ambassador's official Twitter account. He said, I have never followed the ethical, I have always followed, or I have followed the ethical rules and requirements of my office at all times. These false claims of insensitive remarks about race and gender, gender are totally inconsistent with my longstanding record and values. I mean, you take a look at my Jets team. I mean, you see how many Negroes are on that team? Are you kidding me? I mean, man, one time I think I heard I hired a Herman Edwards. I mean, he was a Negro, wasn't he? What's the big deal? I mean, you take a look at the janitor staff. There's a whole bunch of folks of color that I have employed. What are these people talking about? He didn't say that, but I'm just, you know what I mean. My, my thing is always this. He denied these allegations on, on a Twitter account. He made a statement, basically. So for me, you lose all credibility when... You're professing your claim of innocence by making a statement and not saying it on record. Go in front of a camera. Go in front of somebody. Let me see your face. Let me see your expression. Let me see your body language. And let me see how really sincere you actually are. Because if I was accused of these things, of these racist, bigoted, misogynistic, offensive, rude, crude things... The first thing I would want to do is to get my face in front of every camera and let people know who are watching CNN and Fox News and MSNBC and CNBC and ABC and CBS and 3.4 and everybody else. I would want to. I would go on Facebook. I would go on Twitter. I would go on YouTube. I would go on chat. I would go anywhere where people are watching. And I would say these things that have been leveled against me, these racist, homophobic, terrible, awful Things I did not say, I did not say, I did not say. Look at my eyes, look at my expression. I am telling you, this did not happen. I'm saying it with passion, I'm saying it with sincerity, I'm just saying it with the truth echoing from my mouth, from my lips. I did not do that. You are a coward. You are a coward when you go ahead and you make a statement. You are a gutless, spineless coward when you don't face the music of these accusations. If you are truly, because these are reprehensible. These are disgusting. This is not something where, you know, he, he, he was rude in terms of, I said hello to him and he told me to go fuck off. I mean, this wasn't anything like that. These things that he's being accused of are horrible. And if it's not true, if these claims are false, and if, go ahead and say something. Go ahead and get himself out of in front of a camera. Why is he making a statement? Why is he not talking to somebody? Why is he not? I don't know. I don't know. But that's, that's Willie Johnson. That's Willie Johnson. So to me, you you said these things. Because why would these diplomats be lying? Why would these folks be lying? What What advantage do they have to start lying? Of you saying all these things. And it's not just one. It's just not two. It's multiple folks who are saying these things. So we've, we've all been around people like that. You know, Woody Johnson, these NFL owners, the Robert Krafts, the Woody Johnsons, the Arthur Blanks, the Jerry Jones. You know them type of folks, right? They're, they're, part, of the, they're part of that generation. You've, you've been around older people like that, right? They come from that generation that those type of comments 
are, are being made, but they don't realize in their old age about how sexist and racist and offensive and rude and crude and disgusting and out of place and cringeworthy, unacceptable they are, right? You've been around them people who are those in their late 60s, early 70s, mid 70s, who back in the 60s, back in the 70s, back in the 80s, when they were doing their thing, where they were making their money, when they were at their peak, when they were at their most powerful, you know, those type of things, what he was saying was acceptable. Those type of things were kind of shrugged upon. The way that he treated black folks, the way that he treated women back in those days were acceptable. But see, now in 2020, in 2015, 2018, 2019, moving forward, those things are no longer acceptable. That generation no longer accepts that bullshit. That's out the window. So, you know, by coming up and making some type of remark toward women, because back in the 70s and back in the 80s, a woman who was verbally sexually harassed because of the way that she looked or the only way that she was, the only way that she was, you know, a, a, a human being, her human being in this was based on how pretty she was and how much her body was. So because of that, men could make those remarks. Men could talk about her body. Men could talk about how good she looked. And that was her self-worth right there. Back in the 1960s, back in the 1970s, that might have passed. 1980s, that might have passed. The 1990s, that might have passed. When Woody Johnson and these guys were doing their thing. But see, but when you're a billionaire and you're super rich and you're super powerful and you've gone decades upon decades upon decades of nobody telling you any different and you're allowed to get away with these things and no one corrects you, no one says that's wrong or you feel that you're so rich, that you're so powerful, you're the type of person who's worth a billion dollars and you've employed all of these people and you've had the ability because of those people that you employed that they have the opportunity to live a decent life and send their kids to school and live in a good neighborhood and have a strong retirement fund and take care of the bills. So because of that, they owe you something in terms of not getting upset to be a good little boy or to be a good little girl or to be a good little Negro or to be a good little Hispanic guy because you're lucky that you're even in this country for me to give you a job of sweeping floors and mopping floors and wiping down bathroom stalls so because of that i don't need to answer to anybody because of that i can talk the way that i want to talk you see that type of bullshit now for the billionaires regardless of race creed or gender that's no longer acceptable especially when it comes to rich billionaire white republican males and democrat uh rich males no longer acceptable. You can no longer treat women like a piece of meat and justify it because, well, I've given them a job. Because I gave them time off when they gave birth to their child. That's no longer acceptable. You don't get a pass. You don't get a pass uh, from that anymore, Woody or Jerry Richardson. So we've all been around those type of people who the world has kind of passed them by and they're just not really interested in going along. Because they don't acquiesce, or they don't bow down, they don't back down. They're billionaires. They don't have to. Billionaires control this country. Billionaires control the world. So why am I going to have some female who I'm employing making $60,000? Why am I going to have her tell me how to behave? Why am I going to tell her? Why am I going to have her tell me what social norms are? Why am I going to have some black guy tell me what's right and what's wrong? So, you know. That's that's Willie Johnson. I just say fucking own it.
you know, be be ignorant like Mike Ditka and just say, fuck it, I'm old and I'm ignorant and I'm just going to just, you know, that, that's who I am. Mike Ditka was the jackass who was sitting there talking about, you know, recently he was talking about um, um, if people don't, uh, if people want to kneel for the flag during the national anthem or some shit like that, then they should get the fuck out of the country. You know, he's still stuck on that bullshit. But Mike Ditka is Mike Ditka, so why, why does he need to evolve? Why does he need to learn, right? He's Mike Ditka. He's got enough people up there whip kissing his ass and giving him a paycheck to make him live the way he wants to live. So why should he back down, right? And especially there's enough people out there that agree with him that he can get a lot of traction, that he could get a lot of uh, yay yays and hip hip hoorays and Iron Mike, you the man's out there from the ignorant and the close-minded and the bigoted. So, you know, for him, why should he change? Same thing with, um, same thing with Woody Johnson. Why are you going to change? Why are you going to change? Here's the, Biggest thing for the NFL, though, man, because the NFL is up there talking about, oh, yeah, we need to have the owners talk about Black Lives Matter and they need to do these things. And I've always said, why are you wasting your time with that? Why are you even dealing with that? Why are you begging and pleading for the NFL owners to all of a sudden come correct? They're not going to. Jerry Jones and Robert Kraft and Arthur Blank and... Jeffrey Lurie and these guys, they're not coming around. Martha Ford, Daniel Snyder, Stephen, they're not coming around. They're not coming around to say, oh, yeah, all of a sudden now, yeah, I'm, I'm down with the blacks in terms of what they want to do, in terms of what we need to do. They're not, they're not going to. And even if they did, I would doubt their sincerity anyway. You know, I believe more in Stephen Ross, who, A, on one hand, has given money to Trump's re-election, but shit, at least he's up there hiring black folks. At least he's doing that. I mean, you know, at least he's going that route. But we need public players. Stop begging and pleading for the owners to come out and say something about Black Lives Matter and everything else. They ain't going to do it. And And if they do do it, do you really believe them? If you take a look at their track record? No. You, you, show, you want to show me how Black Lives Matter from owners? Start hiring black people other than black people who play football on your team. Start hiring black general managers. Start hiring black coaches. Start hiring black executives. That's what, that, you, if you do that, I don't give a fuck if you ever say Black Lives Matter. I don't give a fuck. I don't care if you kneel with me during the national anthem. I can give a fuck. If you're out there and you're hiring people of color for important positions in your organization, that's cool. That's good enough. That's good enough. Don't sit there and talk about Black Lives Matter, this, that, and the other, take down the statue, and then five years later, after 15 changes in your front office, the all, all the changes are white males. What the hell does that mean? <laughs> so that's my point of view. So stop with this, we need owners to... Say Black Lives Matter, who is any other? Stop wasting your time with that nonsense. And it's funny to me that, you know, you have the public out there vilifying Colin Kaepernick and calling him anti-American and he's no good and he's a horrible role model and all these type of things. And we have all these other folks who are talking about, you know, I'm going to boycott leagues where the players kneel for the national anthem and they don't show respect and all this stupid, ignorant ass bullshit. So, you know, and we talk about all the time the NFL players are bad and, you know, they're poor role models because they get in trouble and all these type of things. Well, have you seen the NFL owners? Some of these guys? 
I mean, let's just kind of take Woody Johnson off the table because we discussed it. Let's talk about Daniel Snyder of the Washington football team who was going to go hell-bent, hell high, hell or high water about keeping that racist nickname until all of a sudden he started losing money. Then he was dragged kicking and screaming to finally give up the name. He didn't give up the name because he had a Julio Cesar Chavez moment. He didn't have a change of heart. He didn't have a Gandhi moment which said, Oh, gee, you know what? I think that the word that we're using to describe our football team, the nickname that we describe our football team, is very offensive to Native Americans. And we should try to do just the bare bones things to show some type of respect and change the football name. Daniel Snyder didn't have a change of heart. That motherfucker chose to do to uh, get rid of that name because he was losing money. Daniel Snyder still thinks the Washington football team should still be called the Washington Blankskins. Period. He'll always believe that. So we're speaking about a guy like that. We're speaking a guy about a guy like Woody Johnson. We're speaking about a guy like Robert Kraft, the owner of the New England Patriots. If you remember last year, he was charged in Jupiter, Florida with two misdemeanor counts of solicitation of prostitution. Now the case is still pending and Kraft had pleaded not guilty, but we went through that bullshit. In 2018, Jerry Richardson, the owner of the Carolina Panthers, he sold his team and was fined by the NFL because an investigation confirmed accusations that he settled complaints of sexist and racist comments to employees with big payouts that came with non-disclosure agreements. We're speaking about a jackass like Jim Mercer, who in March of 2014 was arrested under the suspicion of a DUI and drug possession in Carmel, Indiana. And this was from the Indianapolis Star sports columnist Bob Kravitz. He reported that Ursay had an ongoing drug problem and it came to light when it was later revealed that Ursay's mistress, a female named Kimberly Woodrum, had overdosed and died in a house that Ursay purchased with money belonging to the Indianapolis Colts. Are you kidding me? And these folks are up there talking about how horrible and awful and terrible people who and players who kneel for the national anthem are? Were they being employed by cretins like this? But again, when you're rich, when you're powerful, when you got that money, and I mean, I'm not talking about Nine figures, baby. I'm talking about ten figures. When you're worth that much? Eleven figures? When you're worth that much? You can get away with shit like that. Especially if you're old and you're white. You can get away with shit like that. Now, let you be an NFL football player. You can't. So, I don't know. I mean, moving forward, again. I mean, the NFL is such a hodgepodge of hypocrisy. And just ridiculousness that it's just very interesting to watch but Woody Johnson like that old boy like that old like that like that crazy uncle I hate when people say crazy uncle he ain't a crazy uncle he's a racist uncle when people say stupid shit when the uh when the person that's in the White House now when he says stupid shit when he says racist shit when his followers um sit there and make excuses for them they're not crazy they're stupid the, the statements that the jackass in the White House makes, they're not crazy statements. They're stupid statements. And they're done by a person who's showing stupidity. So let's just call it like it is. So Woody Johnson, he might be a billionaire, and he might be brilliant. And as far as the businessman and everything else, he blows me away. Without question, he blows most people on this planet away. But also, he's a racist. He's a bigot. And uh, that's who Woody Johnson is. 
and his fellow NFL brethren in the fact that, you know, they really don't seem to care about it are guilty by accomplice. Windows World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. Yeah! Yeah! That's what I'm talking about. Woo! I haven't talked about this team in so, so long. Boy, do I love myself some Georgetown Hoyas. Georgetown Hoyas recruiting news. Great week for Georgetown basketball with two players. Not one, but two players committing. Grad transfer Don Carey commits to Georgetown. Played last season at Siena. And announced his intentions on Instagram. He said he'll have two years of eligibility left and will not have to sit out a year. Thank you, Jesus. Played at Siena after transferring from Mount St. Mary's, a 6'5 guard who can really shoot it. Is wired to score. He scored. He started 28 games for Siena last season. Averaged 11 points, three rebounds, two and a half assists. Led the team to a regular season conference championship. And if there is, again, a college basketball season, we don't know, we don't know, we don't know. I think Kerry should get serious consideration for the uh, starting shooting guards ball forward position. If you're taking a look at the potential starters, you got Jalen Harris, the transfer from Arkansas, at the point guard. You had Javon Blair at the shooting guard. You have Kerry starting at the small forward. You have Jamarco Pickett coming back at the power forward. And Kudus Wahab starting at the center with the possible reserves being Timothy Ego Hefe, Chudier Mile, and Dante Harris. After that, I don't know, man. You got the freshman class coming in like Colin Holloway and Kobe Clark and Jamari Sibley and TJ Berger, along with Dante Harris. So from that class, one or two are going to have to get some minutes. But uh, yeah, man, this is some great fucking news. I had no idea. See, that's the thing about Patrick Ewing, man. When you're talking about Colin Holloway, you had no idea. Kobe Clark, you had no idea. Jamari Sibley, he was on him for a while, and that was out there in the tea leaves and on the recruiting trail books and notes and everything. So that was cool. T.J. Berger, you had no idea. Dante Harris, you had no idea. So Ewing is kind of doing this kind of like below the radar, man. I love it. I love it. Don't worry about Twitter. Don't worry about Hoya Saxon. Don't worry about casual Hoya in the comments that are made on those blogs and on those posts. posts. Uh, Coach Ewing, you keep doing what you're doing. Now, the expectations for this team now, if I take a look at this, again, I take a look at Harris at the point. Going to be a senior. Started for Arkansas a couple of years ago. New coaching regime. Didn't fit his style, so he sat on the bench. Still a good warrior, still a good um, still a good teammate, didn't pout, didn't sulk, didn't cause a problem, was there for the team, was there for his teammates, loved the character, so he'll be starting at the point. Javon Blair, who came on after Matt McClung went down, he was averaging 20 points a game, he's going to be starting at the two, again, carry at the three, Jamarco Pickett for this summer, man, I've been following this kid on Instagram, or excuse me, on Twitter, and he's talking about he's working hard, and he's doing this, and he's doing that, and Coach Crouch, Clinton Crouch, the assistant coach at Georgetown, he's putting together a regime and a program for him that he's been going, and he's been working. It seems that Jamarco was really focused on trying to get to the point where he can become that guy that's going to be the leader for the Georgetown Hoyas and get him in position to have some type of chance of making the NBA and playing a few years, or at the very least, getting himself in a position where he can go overseas 
and become a player who can make some real money either playing in Europe or playing somewhere in China. Kudus Wahab came in after Omir Yurt 7 went down with a sprained ankle. He played well. So I take a look at this team. I take a look at the, the improvement that Timothy Ego Hefe made coming in. He wasn't even supposed to play this season. But because of the transfers and because of everything that went down, he got some minutes in the spot minutes that he did play. He was a uh, he was a, he was a guy who contributed. Chudier Bile, the guy that's going to come in from Northwestern State, he's going to provide some energy for the team. Dante Harris, I think, is going to be the backup point guard. It's either going to be him or T.J. Berger. I don't know which one is which. Again, they're both. Freshman, so I don't know. But when I take a look at this team, the expectations that I have, I mean, we're speaking about somewhere between 5th and 8th in the Big East. I think that they have the op- they have the opportunity to become a solid NIT team. Might, if everything falls correctly, might, 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 might have a chance to make the NCAA tournament. I'm not expecting it. I'm expecting, again, somewhere. Georgetown is picked somewhere between 10th and 11th in a lot of the uh, prognosticators as far as the college basketball scene is concerned coming up. But I wouldn't be surprised. I think the best possible situation for Georgetown is to finish fifth or sixth in the Big East. I think more realistically that they're going to be finishing somewhere around seventh and eighth. And in that conference, I think that if as long as you get yourself around a 500 record that makes them NIT worthy, I think the coaching acumen and ability uh, Patrick Ewing, which he's been displaying at the coach of the Georgetown Hoyas, especially uh, last season. I think that with the material that he has to work with, I think that this is a situation where I think, again, the expectation should be moving forward for this team and NIT birth. So I'm happy, man. I am excited. I mean, again, I haven't seen Sienna play and I haven't seen Don Cherry play uh, an extreme amount of times, but he fits a need. He fits the needs of a guy who has played multiple years of college basketball, a guy who from the college basketball level, the level, the scaling report on him is someone who can put the ball in the hoop, a guy who can shoot the three, a guy who can drive, a guy who's a good teammate, a guy who's going to be coachable, a guy who has character, a guy who's going to hustle, a guy who's going to play defense. So I, I like that. I like that. Is he going to be declaring for the NBA draft after next season? No. But I just love the fact that we get that type of guy because Ewing is building that program where you have athletes and characters and players. Love it, love it, love it. So again, for next season, let's get that NCAA tournament bid possibility. Let's get that solid NIT tournament team uh, down and let's do some things, man. Because I'm thinking, man, for the tournament, man, for the whole year to make the tournament, for that to happen, hmm. Combo, a point guard combo, like Jalen, um, like um, uh, Jalen Harris and Dante Harris, T.J. Berger, someone, one of the freshmen, is going to have to be better than we imagined from the point guard position. Nobody thought Terrell Allen when they came in, when he came in, when he when he transferred in from South Florida, was going to have the impact impact that he had because they thought that he would be a guy who would be getting 10, 15 minutes at the very most a game, subbing for a Kinjo and McClung. But after everything went down, he became absolutely invaluable for that squad. So if Dante Harris and Jalen Harris, that combination, can go ahead and be better than what people are expecting, that's going to be awesome for Georgetown and their chances of making the NCAA tournament. If Pickett, Jamarco Pickett, can live up, live up to expectations, become that 17 to 20 point per game score, make the All-Big East first team, he's had the talent. 
everybody's up there talking about, you know, ever from ever since his freshman year, this was a guy who was a four-star recruit from the area. When people are whining and crying and complaining about Ewing not doing the job, about getting players from the D.C. area or not getting four-star recruits, he's getting four-star recruits. And he's getting folks from the D.C. area. Jamarco Pickett was his first main recruit when he became coach of the uh, Georgetown basketball program. And this is a guy who's long, he's lanky. I think if he's going to make it in the NBA, it's going to be a 3 and D player because of his length, because of his shooting ability. And like, take a look at someone like a Mikhail Bridges, who played for Villanova a couple of years ago or last season. He made the jump after redshirting his freshman year. And by the time he was a junior, he was a lottery pick. I'm not thinking, and I'm not expecting Jamarco Pickett to make that type of leap. But I've mentioned before, we've seen players in the Georgetown program, such as a Markel Stark, such as a Henry Sims, make that jump to where they become a valuable player their last season in the program. Ex, uh, surpassing expectations. I think Pickett, who wants to say that he's a Kevin Durant type, I think that uh, this is his last chance. The ability is there. The opportunities are going to be there. The expectations are going to be there. He's going to be one of the leaders of the team. He's going to be one of the go-to guys. And I think he's embraced that by taking a look at his Twitter account, as I mentioned before, since this pandemic went down on what he's talking about. He's really embraced the opportunity to be that. And he's putting in the time. He's putting in the work. He's putting in the effort. He's putting in the dedication from what he's saying on Twitter. I don't know. Maybe he's just, you know, doing that type of shit in terms of saying all this stuff on Twitter. And then in the, and in the uh, meantime, he's eating bonbons and hanging out on, uh, you know, hanging out in D.C. I don't know. But I'm going to go with the I'm going to go with the fact that he's really working hard and he's embracing the opportunity to be a leader and to be the best player on the team heading into a senior year. So if Pickett can live up the expectations, average 20 points a game, make all Big East first team, Georgetown has a chance to make that tournament along with the combo point guard of Jalen Harris and one of the freshmen outliving expectations. Javon Blair, man, averaged 18 points per game. If he can average around 15 to 18 points per game, shoot somewhere between 42-43% from the field, shoot around 35-36% from the three-point line on about seven or eight three-point shots a game, we'll take that. We'll take that. As cute as Wahab can average close to a double-double, somewhere around 12 points, 11 rebounds, average about 30-32 minutes a game, we'll take that. If one of the one or two of the freshmen outplay expectations, whether it be Dante Harris or Sibley or Kobe Clark, if we can get something along those lines, and how many of those things are going to happen? I don't know. I'm hoping at least maybe of the five that I said need to happen for Georgetown to become NCAA tournament bound or NCAA tournament worthy or considerate. I think two or three of those things are have to happen. I think without question that Pickett has to have a big season. Without question, I think Wahab has to average close to a double-double. I think without question... Timothy Ego Hefe has to continue to improve so he can give 10 to 15 minutes of backup, strong backup play. I think without a doubt and without a question that two, not just one, but two of the incoming freshmen have to outlive, have to um, uh, have um, exceptional seasons. I'm speaking about making the all Big East team. Now, if that's going to be Dante Harris, if that's going to be Kobe Clark, 
If that's going to be Jamari Sibley, I don't know who it's going to be, but two of those guys are going to have to make the all biggie freshman team for that to happen. So that's what I'm hoping on. That's what I'm counting on. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Right now, I have switched off because the game was over, the gold medal game that I was watching before as I was recording this podcast between the United States basketball team of 2012 versus Spain. Now I have on a high school game, a Brentwood, excuse me, a Brentwood high school game. Why? Because I'm getting hyped. I'm doing my homework because my man Jordan Riley is playing. Who in the hell is Jordan Riley? Jordan Riley is a big time recruit that has decided to go to Georgetown University for the 2021 season, 2021-2022 season. He chose Georgetown over St. John's, UConn, Florida State, and... Wait for it. Wait for it. Kansas. Fuck yeah. Love this kid. 6'4", 185-pound guard. During the 2019-2020 season, he averaged 23 points, 12 rebounds, 4 assists, while earning Suffolk County Player of the Year honors and leading the team to a 23-2 record and a Class AA championship. Man, watching this kid's highlight, like I said, I saw him on YouTube, just the highlights, but now... Like I mentioned before, doing a little scrolling, doing a little research, finally got a game, um, a full game that I can take and watch. It's just one game, so we'll see what happens. But from watching the highlights, man, this kid's the most off, most athletic player we've had in a while, speaking of Georgetown. And that includes LJ Peak, that includes Jabari Troutwick, that includes Aaron Bowen, that includes Isaac Copeland, that includes the recently departed Matt McClung. In terms of the way that he finishes the way that he takes it to the hoop, the way that he uses his athleticism on the court. This is the most athletic player I think we've had in a while. Slasher who can finish at the rim. He's got to improve his jump shot. Got to improve his handle. He's talking about he wants to come in there and possibly become a point guard. I think for that to happen, that he most definitely has to improve his handle. His jump shot is good by taking a look at the highlights and taking a look at the, this game so far. His, his jump shot is good from 17 to 18 feet, but at the three-point line, looks a little streaky, looks a little sketchy, looks a little inconsistent, but that was your senior year in basketball, senior year in high school basketball before, right? So, the reason why Riley said that he was going to Georgetown, he said, I know they are going to help me become a better college player and make it to the pros, and when I make it to the pros, they will help me because I know they've played in the pros, so that's what stood out for me the most. Riley said that he's working on recruiting three-star St. Raymond's class of 2021 guard McCallie Smith and five-star class of 2022 Oak Hill Academy guard MJ Rice to Georgetown. Keep working. Keep working. Keep doing your thing, Jordan. Bring us back, baby. Bring us back. You know what? This looks so much better. When you take it because everybody, it's been a tough offseason, man, for Coach Ewing. And I'm not just talking about because he caught the COVID-19 virus. I mean, the criticism that's been coming from the fan base concerning this guy. Unreal. Unrelenting. And it got even louder, not just because Matt McClung decided with all his drama and decided that he was going to go somewhere else. He was going to take his talents to Lubbock. Maybe go by the Buddy Holly Museum and play for, uh, play for the Texas Tech program. But, you know, people were just outraged when Georgetown lost the recruiting battle to local product Quincy Allen, who decided he was going to go to um, Colorado. And people were like, well, shit, man, I can understand if a guy 
And Quincy Allen is a top 50 player in the 2021 class, four-star guy. People are like, well, shit, man, I can understand if, you know, he chose Duke or Kentucky or one of those type of blue bloods over Georgetown, North Carolina, who lost, who's been losing recruits to that school left and right over the past couple of seasons. But I, so it's like, I can understand maybe if, you know, you lose a recruiting battle to Kansas or one of those type of schools. But the Colorado, Colorado, a guy who's 10 minutes away from your campus and you lose him to Colorado? Seriously, coach? Really, coach? And of course, that started the whole nonsense about we need to get a guy in here who's a who has DC ties, you know, who can go ahead and talk to the guys at Team Takeover and Boo Williams AAU team and try to get some of those guys. People were still sore. Georgetown Hoya fans are still sore. The fact that we thought we had a local recruit in Terrence Williams from Gonzaga, but then he decommitted after everything went down with the Ken Joe and LeBlanc and those guys, and he decided to go to Michigan. So people have just been on Ewing about get a local recruit, get a local recruit, get a local recruit. One thing that I will say, you know, Georgetown's facing all of this criticism about not getting local recruits. If you want to go that route, you better include Maryland. You better talk about Maryland because these guys, whether it's um, the guy from the Matho or the Dickerson kid or a couple of other kids from Mike Jones' program, some of the other locals, they ain't going to Maryland either. These high, the guy from um, Paul the Sixth over in Arlington, that high school, those schools, the WCAC, one of the best conferences for high school basketball in the country. When you talk about DeMatha and Paul the Sixth and O'Connell and, um, and uh, St. John's and those guys who always come out with really good basketball players, those four and five star recruits, they ain't going to Maryland either. Them kids from Gonzaga, those kids from Carroll, from that conference, and from the surrounding areas in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. Maryland doesn't have a pipeline. If you want to talk about and get salty about why is Villanova coming in and taking all of these uh, recruits away from Georgetown, you better include Maryland in that deal also. And Mark Turgeon has got himself a team that year in and year out is a top 20 team. So there's more ways to skin a cat. But getting Don Cherry... Don Carey, excuse me, not Don Cherry, he's the guy who's up there in Canada, but Don Carey, a local kid who played his ball in Upper Marble, Maryland, who grew up in P.G. Kelly, fuck yeah, hell yeah, shit yeah. And let me tell you something, all this whining and complaining about that nonsense, watch Georgetown if they make the NCAA tournament. Watch all of a sudden now how much love goes to Robert Kirby, one of the uh, assistant coaches who does most of, the, most of the recruiting, who normally has a southern base. Colin Holloway is a guy who is from New Orleans. Dante Harris is a guy from uh, Tennessee. So when we're speaking about the main recruiter, the lead recruiter, Robert Kirby, and his second stint with Georgetown has had tremendous success. He's, uh, he's one of the better OGs in terms of um, getting of, of recruiters out there in the country. You have a guy who, in Coach Clinton Smith, who is a player development guy for the Georgetown basketball program. He's locally based. He did his thing. He was training local athletes for years, almost in the D.C. area. And he's now on the staff at Georgetown. So you know that he has some connections in that area. You're speaking about now Austin Freeman, who played for Georgetown back in the JT3 days most recently. He's now the JV coach or one of the assistant coaches at Georgetown. So that's another pipeline that the uh, Hoyas can go by because they have one of their own coaching in that in that program. So I'm not sitting up here whining and complaining and 
fettering and all that type of stuff about what's Georgetown going to do. If you gave me the opportunity to say, would you rather have the Don Carey, Jordan Riley combo or the Matt McClung, <clears throat> Matt McClung, excuse me, man, um, Quincy Allen combo, I would go with Carey and Riley. And I know that, you know, I might be a little bit sore, all that kind of stuff with McClung and everything. No, seriously. Seriously, because right now, everybody's talking about with this kid, Jordan Riley, it was like, hey, man, this kid was about to blow up in terms of the summer leagues, in terms of the AAU circuit that was going to be, you know, if we had the AAU summer leagues this season, you know, when you had the EBYL and every year, Nike, Adidas, they have their AAU tournaments out here in Vegas. That I always like to go to because I always like to get an idea, see in person the type of players that Georgetown is taking a look at. So, you know, also a nice opportunity to see these coaches walking around. Saw Coach K, saw Bill Sell, saw Lorenzo Romar, saw all those guys. Saw JT3 when he was coaching Georgetown out here in Vegas, taking a look at some of these prospects. So the big-time recruits and the big-time coaches, this is AAU tournaments out here in Vegas, um, they're big-time. They're big-time. And that's just one of the stops for the EBYL and the other AAU tournaments, the sneaker companies that put on these tournaments. And the expectations were from the recruiting trail that Jordan Riley was one of these guys who at the time was a three-star recruit. This was the guy who was going to make that jump to be a four- and five-star recruit because of the season that he had. But again, everything shut down because of the virus, because of the coronavirus canceling everything. So I'm excited. I'm excited, man. So if you take a look at the 2021 recruiting class for G-Town, you've got Tyler Beard, a 6'5 combo from Whitney Young High School in Chicago, former class of uh, the 2020 recruiting class who is going to spend the next season at Hargrave Military Academy before joining Georgetown in 2021. Other potential recruits. The main guy that we're after right now from everything that I'm reading is Ryan Matambo, who's the son of Dikembe Matambo, 6'11 from Atlanta, Georgia. He's ranked number 65 in the 27 sports composite in terms of ranking is concerned. He lists Georgetown, Florida State, Georgia Tech, Arizona, Clemson, Stanford, Kansas came by to see him and many others. So this is a high profile, top tier recruit. Don't know if we're going to get him or not, but it looks pretty good. Most out there are talking about, you know, when everything is all said and done, he'll go to Georgetown. But we'll see. We'll see. You got Patrick Baldwin, the 6'9 combo. I don't know, man. This kid's like a shooting guard, point guard, small four from what he's been being talked about. He's the number one ranked recruit in the 2021 class. He's the, mentioned before, he's either the best or second best player in the class. Um, he's one of the best shooters. He's listed Georgetown as one of the schools that's recruiting him the hardest. While you got Duke, you got Northwestern, where his parents played. You have Milwaukee, where his dad is currently the coach. He noted that the staff for Georgetown has been to several of his games. And we continue to be one of the most aggressive programs trying to land him. But from everything that I've read, when everything is all said and done, if Krzyzewski wants him, he'll get him, which is fine. Which is fine. I just like the fact that we're in the conversation. I just like the fact that the top recruits are hearing the name Georgetown. I just like the fact that, you know, when Patrick Baldwin gets around his homeboys and gets around these guys at the AAU tournament or when he talks to them on Skype or when he talks to them on Zoom or when he talks to them on Facebook or when he talks to them on any other social media, 
that if he's talking to other five-star recruits, that's that's his homeboys, that maybe the name Georgetown can come up when they're talking about, hey, yo, where you going? What are you thinking about going this, that, and the other? What about this school? What about that school? What about this coach? What about that coach? The fact that Georgetown is on the lips of Patrick Baldwin, and at least, and at least, um, he's talking positively about about him uh, openly. I mean, we can't get him. Maybe we'll get one of his other homeboys who might be a four or five star recruit. So that's always good with me. As long as we're talking about, as long as the name Georgetown is attached to some of these high profile players, that could be nothing but a good thing. And speaking about high profile players, Chet Holmgren. Chet Holmgren, seven foot from Minnesota. He's ranked number two and ranking in the class of 21. Kind of hard to really classify what position that he plays because he's seven feet tall. He plays like a guard. I had the opportunity to see him play last summer. That's how long Georgetown has been on this guy. He took an unofficial re- uh, recruiting visit to Georgetown last season. He listed Georgetown as one of his favorite teams in terms of the teams that have been recruiting him the hardest or the programs that have been recruiting him the hardest along with Minnesota and Michigan and Gonzaga and Ohio State, Memphis, North Carolina, the... The betting odds are Gonzaga's the clear favorite for Holmgren. But again, not heavily upset about that. I just love the fact that we're putting in the time and the effort to get him. Because once again, even if you don't get him, again, he's talking. He's speaking about Georgetown. He's openly praising Georgetown. And if he's doing that, he can be doing that with other recruits who might not want to go to Gonzaga, might not want to go to North Carolina, might not want to go to Memphis, might not, not might not want to go to Duke, might not want to go to Kentucky. And is looking at Georgetown building that relationship. You know, you got Ewing, you got Kirby, you got all the uh, players on the team. But then again, the peers speaking about how great Georgetown is, even though uh, Holmgren, even though a Baldwin might not go there could entice that player to say, you know what, I'm going to give Georgetown a closer look. So it could be Georgetown's opportunity to get themselves a four or five-star recruit. But again, I I'm not ang- I, I wasn't angry when Omar Cisse chose Georgetown, uh, chose Memphis over Georgetown. Because now when it comes to these one-and-done types, I'm not really interested. Now, don't get me wrong. If Chet Holmgren wants to come to Georgetown, yes, 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 yes. If Patrick Baldwin wants to play one year at Georgetown, yes, 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 yes. Man, I'll be dancing up and down the streets, the highways, the byways. I'll dance from here to Reno. And then from Reno to Boise. And then Boise to Spokane. And then Spokane to Tacoma, Washington. And then back down to Sacramento. Cross on over to Portland. Head on over to Astoria. Go back over to Wendover, Nevada. And then head on back down to Vegas. Continuing to dance. The dance and dance and dance and dance. Woo, good Lord have mercy. Could you imagine Chet Holmgren going to Georgetown? Could you imagine Patrick Baldwin going to Georgetown? Hmm, play me some Otis Redding. Play me some Levi Stubbs. Play me some Four Tops. Play me some Nas. Play me some Rakim. Play me some, play me some everything. Because I'm going to be dancing. I'm going to be dancing for a while and don't let the music stop. Good Lord have mercy, man. Play me everything. So don't get me wrong. It's not like I'm sitting up here talking about we don't want or get rid of um, the opportunity to get these guys. Continue to coach, continue to recruit them. But my thing is that because these guys are one and dones, Georgetown is not really what you would say a one and done program. I mean, Omar Cisse, as I mentioned before, 
chose Memphis over Georgetown, he reclassified. He's a five-star, I guess now in the top 15 of the 2020 class. He probably would have been top 10 if he would have stayed in the 21 class. But he reclassified from the 21 class to the 2020 class because he wants to become eligible quicker for the NBA. That's fine. I don't want anybody like that on our team. And by taking a look at his highlights, look, I'm taking a look at his highlights. I've never seen a kid play up front in person, and I've never seen a kid play in the entire game. But from what I've seen, that kid has a lot of potential. A lot of potential. He's seven feet tall, shoots it a little bit, puts the ball on the floor a little bit. He's wiry. He's skinny. He needs to add some weight. But the athleticism is there. That kid is an athlete for seven feet tall. Hardaway has got himself a gem for a year. But uh, he's only going to be there for a year. Kind of made that uh, known. That he's looking for a program to go to where he can get into the league quicker. Georgetown's not that type of program. They're just not. They're more Villanova than they are Kentucky, Duke, or Memphis. George, Patrick Ewing is trying to build. I'm not, I mean, they're, but Georgetown is not even in a position right now. They don't have the foundation. They don't have the talent to even think about doing what Duke is doing or Kentucky is doing with the success that those guys have had in terms of bringing in four and five star recruits, six and seven recruiting classes of those type of players where four or five of those or you know, 80 to 90% of the players that Krzyzewski and Calipari and those guys are recruiting are going to go to the NBA. And really when it comes to uh, Calipari, he makes no bones about it. That's his goal to try to get those guys to go to the NBA as quickly as possible. They're not trying to develop some type of three or four year plan with those guys. That's the selling point for Calipari. You go to my school in six months, eight months, you'll be a millionaire. Because you'll be in the NBA and we'll do everything that we can to get you there. That's not Patrick Ewing's program. He's not that type of a coach. But there's two ways to skin a cat. There's more than one way to skin a cat. And there's more than one way to uh, win a championship. Because doing it that way, Calipari, how many championships has he won? Doing it that way at Kentucky. Oh, he's had some good teams. And he's had some teams that made the final eight. The final four. He's had a whole lot of players go in the first round. He's had them players go in the lottery. John Wall went number one in the draft. All those things are nice. All those things are wonderful. But for Kentucky fans out there, how many championships has he won with that formula? And he's been doing it now for over 10 years. How many championships? One. And that's what won with Michael Kidd Gilchrist and Anthony Davis. But they wouldn't have won that championship if it wasn't for the junior on that team, Terrence Jones, who was a highly recruited player from Portland, Oregon, who thought he was going to come in and only play one year and go to the NBA. Then he found out, oops, maybe I should stay a few years to get myself ready to go. So, you know, that's a rare breed. And if you speak about the times, it's very, 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 very rare in college basketball where you see a team that's constituted mostly with, you know, freshman uh, freshman players, five-star recruits, top-tier players who are freshmen, lead a team to a championship. Very, very few. Duke, there's a couple of times that they've done it. Uh, when they had um, Justice Winslow, and they had Trey Jones, and they had Emeka Okafor, not Emeka Okafor, rather Kentucky, where they had, uh, oh my goodness, the kid who went into the NBA, drafted third by the Philadelphia 76ers, can't play any defense, has no face-up game, and now he's been lounge, now he's been like jumping from team to team. Okafor, 
uh, Okafor, the kid Okafor. That team was good. And that team won the uh, uh, championship basically because of that. So there's been some examples, and Coach K is Coach K as far as the coach is concerned. Are you kidding me? So, yeah, those things have been done, but I don't think Ewing is that kind of coach. And I, I'm going to guess that definitely not now, that if Ewing all of a sudden started bringing in, like, recruiting classes of four- and five-star recruits, top tens, top 15 players, with the idea that they were going to play one year and then leave, I don't think Georgetown would be that good. I think Georgetown, I don't think Ewing would be that good of a coach under those circum- under those circumstances. If every year he had to reload, reload, reload every single year. I think Ewing is the type of coach who's a program builder, not a guy who's, a, who's just going to reload every year. Now, you have someone like Mike Krzyzewski who can do both. Well, that's one of the reasons why Mike Krzyzewski is one of the greatest college basketball coaches of all time. But, um, yeah, so I don't, I don't need that. So losing out on Baldwin or losing out on Holmgren, that wouldn't... That wouldn't uh, that wouldn't bother me too much, especially I, I cannot imagine that those two guys with the type of talent that they have wouldn't just go straight to the G Select League. Would he, would, I don't even know why those guys right now would even play college basketball. Now, Holmgren is a skinny guy. That guy needs to put on at least 40 pounds. And, you know, they call him a unicorn and all that kind of stuff. Comparing him to Kevin Durant, even when Kevin Durant was that Montrose Christian over here in Rockville, Maryland, and I went to Texas. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Do not do that to that kid. Kevin Durant was miles, miles better than Chet Holmgren when Kevin when uh, Durant was in high school. Miles. Because Holmgren is nice, but just physically, he's not there. He doesn't have that athleticism. So, yeah, seven feet tall, he can put the ball on the floor and put the ball behind his back and put the ball between his legs, but he doesn't have the athleticism. He doesn't have the speed or the quickness to go by anybody. And he's seven feet tall who can shoot from the outside and everything. That's great. But if you put a guy six 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 seven up against him, he's not going to be able to do those type of things. Now, if you put a guy who's a back-to-the-basket player who might be lumbering at seven feet tall, yeah, Holmgren might be able to get by him, but he doesn't have the athleticism. He doesn't have the strength as of right now to finish at the rim to be comparing him to a generational talent like Kevin Durant. So, I mean, I think Holmgren as a freshman would do well, but I don't think, I mean, you remember Kevin Durant when he was a freshman? The same year that Greg Oden was a freshman, when he Oden and um, Mike Connolly Jr. was was down there at uh, or up there at uh, playing for Ohio State with Thad Mata, Oden was good, and people were talking about this is the next great center and defensive player and all these type of things. But what Kevin Durant was doing down in Texas, and he didn't get the love because Texas wasn't having the same type of success at the time that Ohio State had. That's what happens when you play for Rick Barnes. But man, Kevin Durant, everybody knew that that guy was going to be a fucking superstar when he got into the league. He had the killer instinct. He had the ball handling skills. He had the athleticism enough at the height and the weight that he had to where he could get off his shot, where he could go to the rim, where he could do some things. So while he didn't have the strength and everything, he had the quickness, especially for his height, to match with his skills, with his perimeter skills, to be able to be a scorer and be the player that he is, which he is throughout his NBA career. I don't know about Chet Holgren. I don't know if Holmgren can do something like that. From what I've seen, and I saw him play in person a couple of times, I, I remember last year when he was with that team, the player on the other team, oh, what the player on his team for Minnesota, I want to say Jalen Scruggs, Scruggs, 
He's supposed to be going to Gonzaga. He was a better player by miles. So it'll be interesting. I'm not, you know, again, if he goes to Georgetown, love it. But I'm not, uh, I'm not really going to be, you know, I'm not going to really be upset or disappointed. Who I would love to get because with the acquisition of Jordan Riley, now for the recruiting class, Georgetown has two scholarships available. They have Beard. They have Riley already, you know, in the fold so far. They've committed. So for the two remaining scholarships, I would love to see those guys get Frankie Collins out of Arizona. He's ranked 58th. He went to a he went on an official visit last year with uh, Ryan Matambo. So I would love to get some type of Frankie Collins on this on board. He's made the top eight along with Auburn, Kansas, Arizona State, Michigan, Vanderbilt, USC, and New Mexico State. So let's kind of like get New Mexico State out of there. Let's kind of get Vanderbilt out of there, despite Jerry Stackhouse being the coach. Um, so basically, it's going to come down to Auburn, Kansas, Arizona State, Michigan. In USC, in the infield, Shady, uh, Michigan, Jawan Howard, okay, Arizona State, Bob Hurley, okay, Bruce Pearl, mm-hmm, Shady, Kansas, we don't know about what's going to be going on with their situation after they've been dinged for a couple of violations, so, I don't know, man, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, but uh, we, I want either Frankie Collins, I want either him or Malachi Smith, Smith was considered one of the best players in New York, and again, just like Riley, analysts suggest his recruitment would have exploded if the AAU games would have been gone on as planned. And Coach Ewing has reportedly conducted several calls for Smith. And Georgetown appears to be at the top of his list, along with Dayton, Rutgers, East Carolina, and many others. Again, I'm holding on to the statement that he would have exploded this season if um, the AAU had gone on as planned. So... I don't know, man. I'm excited about this team. I miss, I miss, I miss following this team. I dearly miss the Kenner League. Man, do I miss the Kenner League because it would have been fantastic to see what some of these guys could have done, the incoming freshmen. So, Georgetown's also in the running for Jordan Hawkins out of DeMatha. Come on, Austin Freeman, help, help us out, get it done. He's ranked 49th in the 2021 class. Now, Georgetown started a little late on him. So we have Xavier, who appears to be the favorite, along with Marquette, Maryland, Louisville, Michigan, among others. But it's early. We don't know. Everything is up in the air. Basketball season coming up. We don't know. But um, I miss, man, I miss talking Georgetown. I miss, I just miss everything about Georgetown, man. I'm just so excited, especially where you're coming in with so many young players and so many new players. I mean, because of the exodus of players from the last recruiting class, you know, we're starting over again. Ewing, again, is starting to rebuild, kind of like when he first came in with the program and the cupboard would bear. And he had to go out and he had to get, uh, you know, Javon Blair out of Toronto and he had to go get DeMarco Pickett and he had to kind of scratch and claw and get through that first season. It's a learning experience for the coach and for the players this year because, again, he's going to have to rely on a lot of young guys. So it'll be interesting. The one thing that I'll say, then I'm more hopeful for moving forward, and I'll get out of here with this, with um, Ewing in this class, other than the class that brought in the Kinjo and McClung and LeBlanc and the rest of those guys who transferred, is that one thing that was always like, you know, all right, Nate, the greatest, but I'll take it, was the fact that Georgetown wasn't the first choice of McClung and Akinjo at the beginning. The only reason why Akinjo 
went to Georgetown was because of the whole Kevin Ollie situation at UConn. When Ollie was fired because of improprieties with the program, Akinjo had committed to Ollie in UConn. So the only reason why he took a second look was because of the situation. So Georgetown really wasn't Akinjo's first choice. Same thing with McClung. McClung was going to be going to Rutgers. And Dave Rice, I guess everything, Dave Rice, I think, was long gone by then. But, you know, it was a situation where he had a change of heart and then he decided to go to Georgetown. So it was like, yeah, we'll take it, no doubt about it. And we'll be glad to have you, no doubt about it. And that's not an ominous sign to say that, you know, what happened was going to happen. But, you know, I always like it better when a recruit chooses a school first and foremost and doesn't have to do so after someone decommits because of situations beyond their control that they didn't know of. So when I take a look at Dante Harris, when I take a look at Jabari Sibley, when I take a look at Kobe Clark, when I take a look at Colin Holloway, when I take a look at TJ Berger, when I take a look at all these guys, all these guys who are coming in as freshmen this season, these were, Georgetown was their first option it was this is where they wanted to go it wasn't the situation was well you know i was going to go to this school but something happened to where i couldn't go to that school so then i had to pick another school so i said fuck it let me go to georgetown it wasn't a situation like that so i'm hopeful that these guys are going to stick around for the long haul i think sibley is a guy who despite the fact that he's a four-star recruit i think that he's a guy that's going to be around for four years i think that he's a four-year player i think colin holloway is a guy who can maybe make a mark sometime in his sophomore or junior year i think that someone like a tj Berger might have the opportunity to make an impact on this team somewhere in this junior year i haven't seen these kids play I haven't seen these kids play, so I don't know. But just taking a look at the schools that were recruiting him, just taking a look at the scattering reports, just taking a look at the prognosticators and the Alice and, and, and the folks who um, um, do these kids in terms of where they're going to go and what they're all about. You know, I think that, you know, when you speak about Berger and when you speak about Holloway, I think those are guys who are not going to get too much playing time their freshman year. But I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I have no idea. But. The four and five star recruiting class stuff doesn't bother me anymore. The one and dones don't really bother me anymore. Mentioned before, it's not Ewing's forte. I don't think. I don't think. And having a class full of one and dones, four and five star recruits, that didn't quit championships. If that was the case, Memphis would have been a lot higher than they were last season because they have one of the best freshman classes in the past 20 years. That freshman class that Memphis and Penny Hardaway put together was so good that Steve Fisher, Jalen Rose, Jalen Rose and Jawan Howard and Chris Weber and the other two guys sat back and said, damn, that's a damn good recruiting class. When you have a James Wiseman going to Memphis and Precious, uh, uh, Precious, um, what was the kid's name? Owacha or something like that? Boogie Ellis, DJ Jeffries, Lester Quinones, Damon Ball, Malcolm Danridge. I mean, those were two five-star top 15 recruits along with five four-star recruits, three were being in the top 60. And what did Memphis do? What did, what did Penny Hardaway do? The team finished 21-10 and 10 in fifth place in the American Conference. And at the time of the season ending because of the coronavirus, Memphis was one of the teams on the outside looking in when it came toward the NCAA tournament. So don't, don't give me that nonsense. It takes a really good coach, it takes a very good coach, to be able to have real success. Because you have these guys coming, when you have these guys coming in, I mean, all of these guys have been scoring 25, 30, 35 points a game in their high school careers. I mean, they didn't become 
five-star recruits. They need to become top 20, top 30 players because of their defensive acumen, setting screens, rebounding, and diving for loose balls. That's not the reason why they became five-star recruits, four-star recruits. For the most part, you might get a seven-footer who blocks, you know, a whole lot of shots and was a big defensive guy and based on potential, he might become a five-star recruit. But most of these guys who went to Memphis were guys who were scorers, guys who dominated the basketball. Well, in a class like this, you ain't going to get that opportunity. You're not going to have, unless you're James Wiseman and, you know, give Penny Hardaway a little bit of a excuse because of the whole situation that went down with him. He only played a handful of games at that, and then the NCAA ruled him ineligible. But, you know, you take a look at these guys coming in, these four or five, four or five star recruits who think that they're all going to be going in the NBA after five years. It takes a really, really good coach and a really, really good communicator and a guy with a whole lot of sway and a, and a, with a strong reputation for those coaches to sit in there and say, no, I'm sorry, you might have averaged 30 points a game in high school, but guess what? For the next two to three years, you're going to have to rebound, set screens, and take charges. Sorry, that's what you're going to, you know, your scoring days are over. You know, your fadeaway three-pointers with four guys around you 15 times a game, that's over. You're not doing that anymore. You know, taking guys off the dribble and going one off four every single game, those days are gone. That's high school. Now here in college, if you want to get playing time, you're going to have to be a guy who's only going to average six points a game. You're going to have to be a guy who's going to be a facilitator. You're going to have to be a guy who's only going to rebound, do the dirty work, take charges, block shots, and run the floor. And you're only going to be doing that in 15 to 18 minutes a game for your first couple of seasons, if that. So it takes a uh, takes a real, really, 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 really good coach to be able to um, convince these guys to do that. Reality sucks. When you get on campus in your whole high school career, or ever since you were 12, 13 years old, people were telling you, you know what? If it wasn't for the NBA instituting that one and done rule, you would be a guy who could go straight to the NBA out of high school. And you have guys talking about your five star and you're talking about top 10, top 15 in your class and all this type of stuff. It's a hard reality check when all of a sudden you have a Calipari or you have a Bill Self or you have a Penny Hardaway or you have a Roy Williams or you have a Mike Krzyzewski talking about, no, sorry, uh, see that bench right there? You're, you're ninth. <laughs> when, it, when it comes to playing time, you're going to be eighth and you're going to be ninth. And if you shoot more than five times a game, you're going to be on the bench. Sorry, rebound, block shots, take charges, set picks, sorry. So, yeah, man. Let's uh, take the special coach. And right now, I don't think Patrick Ewing is their coach. Don't, don't even want to uh, have him develop into one. Jay Wright's going to make the Hall of Fame not being one of those coaches. Roy Williams made the Hall of Fame really not being one of those coaches. So we'll see. We'll see. All right. I want to thank you very much for listening to the program. My name is Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World of Sports. It is time for me to get something to eat and watch my man Jordan, Hollow, Jordan Riley do his thing. So guess what? I am O U T. Out, M-U-S-I-C-P-L-E-A-S-E.